This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, on today's episode of the podcast, I sat down and visited with Pat Durkin. Pat has been on the podcast before, uh, so it was fun to catch up with him again. He's an outdoor writer. He's an editor. Uh, he writes a lot for different places like Meat Eater. Uh, he's done for many years a weekly column in different newspapers throughout Wisconsin. Uh, and again, just a, a prolific writer uh, within those different worlds, as well as he was the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. So just a long career in uh, newspaper and outdoor media and outdoor writing uh, so it was fun to catch up with Pat and visit with him again I hope you guys enjoy this one welcome to the obsessed podcast I'm your host Logan Herkus in this podcast we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors we dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. I'll try to stay right here. Yeah. What you reading? Young Men and Fire by Norman yeah. McLean. Huh. So I might talk to you about that. Yeah. Actually, we can even we can even begin with that. Is uh, last time we were talking about the art of writing and the joy of writing okay. and the appreciation of it. Yeah. You remember A River Runs Through It, Norman yeah. McLean? Yeah. Have you read that? Yeah. Have you read it, this one here? No. Uh, no, this, that writer is unbelievable. And that's yeah. part of what got my re, uh, interest in the, the art of writing and yeah. whatever else. But, and, and, and on, on our last time we talked, you had talked about, uh, how did you word it? Like, a a, a focus on death or an, uh, oh, yeah. obsession I, 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 on death. Mar- morbid curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> and th- this story yeah. here is just unbelievable. But at Norman McLean is such an unbelievable writer in the middle of telling a story about a fire, he'll drop some poetry on you and it's yeah it's pretty crazy but maybe we'll talk about it later too but the uh the story behind this was pretty neat i just thought it'd be fun to fun to chat about but yeah i i wish i had read that but i haven't yeah yeah i've read um this book a few years ago on the the big burn Hmm. um i think his name is egan timothy egan i think his name was but i can't remember for sure but anyway yeah yeah the uh and so does this work if we just roll with this yeah let's go awesome the one thing we didn't get to talk a lot about last time was your running and okay. I, that was something I thought it'd be fun to talk about. And then I was also curious about a few other things that we did talk about. So can we get into that? Your yeah, running sure. side of things. Love to talk about it. Again, we, t- we touched on it before, but what started you on that? What, yeah. Where did that come from? I got, I got really lucky. I was, um, as a kid and at the only time I really ran, um, when I was young was when, there, when I was forced to, Okay. you know, like in gym class, whatever. And then in the Navy, we had to run someone in boot camp. And then I remember, um, it wasn't too often, but for like a while in the Navy, I ran and, and when we were at sea and stuff and stuff, I could run laps around this one part of the ship, but I never really got into it. I'd, I'd run for a while and then just kind of lost interest after a while. And then, then, um, when I got out of the Navy, I tried to resume running again. I remember um, running like a, about a mile and a half and just about dying from it and just hating it. And, and I, but I still tried for a while, for like a month. Just, then eventually lost interest again. 
then I never, then I got pretty much where I didn't do anything physically for a long time. Yeah. I think I was like in, into my um, mid forties when I finally just started worrying about how much I weighed, how much I was eating, all that kind of stuff. And I, I started doing, um, I was always doing things like push-ups and whatever, just to maintain my upper body strength for bull hunting. Because mm-hmm. I, I knew from shooting a bull that if you don't keep those muscles going year round, it's really hard to just get back into it in the summer and get back up to shooting a 65, 70-pound bull. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, to make a long story short, I, I when I got started getting serious about fitness, I was in my um, mid-40s about then. Then by about age 49... I was um, losing weight and getting down to a manageable weight. And then I was going to the gym. I, st- I remember I started going to the gym in 2004 and just doing um, thing cardio work for the first time regularly on, on, a, on one of those um, elliptical machines. Mm-hmm. And then I used a stationary bike and I used on uh, the rowing machine, basically anything to get my heart rate up because I realized it wasn't doing much you know, cardio. And then it just kind of running came to me kind of where I I was getting bored with all the machines and being tied to the, the idea of having a machine to get your cardio work. And then one year on Thanksgiving, I remember this really clear, it was 2006 on Thanksgiving. I was um, at that age, I'd have been, I'd have been just turning 50 at that time. My brother um, was hosting our Thanksgiving get-together. Hey guys, well, uh, when when we were recording there, our microphones cut out for just a minute, and then Pat was talking about seeing his brother, uh, and his brother had just run a turkey trot run the morning, a, a Thanksgiving charity run, uh, and then he gets into how he said, "Hey, I'll, tr- I'll I'll join you next year on that." But just to give you some context about this gap right here, yeah, I I had just turned turned fifty the previous January, so I'd be fifty one that next January. So anyway, I, I told Tom next year I'm running this this 5k with you mm-hmm. and so like over the course of winter i started running in the treadmill just building myself up and i'd run you know like in intervals where i'd run like for five minutes and then walk for two and then run for five and eventually i could run the whole um you know 5k on the treadmill but i still i don't think i really ran outside a whole lot but i was just starting to by, by springtime i was running um you know a couple miles to the gym a couple miles home and building that up. And then, so when I ran this first 5K, then the following year is 2007, and I was 51 years old and feeling pretty good the fact I'd run a 5K. I, that was, mm-hmm. I was, it, it was exciting. It was, and I, and the first time I two, I realized the vibe of the running community. You know, hmm. everyone was kind of, just kind of a happy crowd. No one's complaining, no one's bitching. And I liked that. It made, made an impact on me that so many people could get together and, do something where they knew they tested themselves physically and made a lot, you know, made this, um, it was like a Kiwanis group or something. It was something where you felt like, well, you know, hmm. you donated some money and you ran a few miles to make yourself, you know, for your own health. And I felt good about it. Mm-hmm. So then I, um, I think 2008, I remember I started having my first running issues hmm. where I didn't, I didn't know things like, um, that you should get good pairs of good shoes i was just re- using whatever shoes i had for for running shoes and so my feet were causing problems and i started having issues with that so i finally went to a running store um started get you know getting fitted for shoes but i still didn't didn't understand basic things like if, if you have a size eight and a half foot you need to get 
typically a, foot, a size and a half larger to, to accommodate how much sliding forward your, your feet do in back and forth in the, inside the shoe. Hmm. And so I ended up getting, a, you know, rethinking all the stuff on, on shoes. But this is, it was a gradual learning process. And then um, w- one thing I really benefited from just totally by luck I didn't realize this till I was way into my running lifestyle was um, a lot of people try to get into running like cold turkey. They they um, they really aren't doing much, and they try to use running to get themselves fit. Mm-hmm. And that one thing I learned along the way from this um, physical trainer in Green Bay, he's he actually, um, it's, it's this Bellin Clinic down in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And that's the same clinic that works with the Packers. Hmm. But one of the things they started offering, I think it's about, I think it's 2017. They had, they they broadened their clinic, and they got this um, machine in there and this computer in there that could t- f- to run um, to run analyze people's running um, form. Mm-hmm. They'd hook hook up these electrodes on you, and then take a video while you ran in this treadmill, and then you get off and they'd analyze it and they could tell you um, where your problems were and where your good things you know good things you're doing right, all those kind of issues, mm-hmm. and. This guy told me that the biggest mistake most runners make is they try to run themselves fit. And he said it's, it's much better to work up to a, through through strength training, right? you know, overall good gym straight strength training, then start running, you know, once you're in your muscles are in decent shape and they've been exercised a bit mm-hmm. and strengthened a bit, then start adding the running into it. Don't try to just go and use running to be your main main uh, fitness objective. Yeah. So I got lucky that way where I'd been running, I'd been working out in the gym for a long time, probably four or five years and just building up my strength and just for my own, for my own sake, you know? Yeah. And then, um, but what, what happened along the way as I got, the more I ran was that I, I found that I, um, I don't really, I can't say I really enjoy the running, but I enjoy the benefits of it. Hmm. I, I, I like it, um, that my breathing was improving because I've had a lifetime of asthma problems and I found that I could go hunting and walk up hills in the spring turkey woods and not be worrying about um, going up the hill. You just, there's a hill, you just go up it. Yeah. Where instead of in the past, I used to kind of avoid it and try to f- figure ways around it. And so I, I start, started to realize there's some real mental and psychological and physical benefits to, to running. You know, So I, I kept doing it. And then in 2008, I don't think I ran any more races until the following turkey trot the following November. And then um, 2009, I started broadening a little bit. I think I, yeah, I ran my first uh, five-mile race in April of 2009. Then the, the following year, after running a few, couple more, like ten, I ran 10K that year. Then the next year, I had set my first real goal where I thought, okay, this year I'm going to run a half marathon. So for 2010, I... I started preparing for doing a half marathon, and, and I, I ran one, and my first one in May, probably Memorial Day weekend down Mass, Wisconsin. They have a, they always offered a, a half, um, I think they ran like a 10K, uh, a half marathon, and a full marathon. So I, my first time I ran a, a half marathon, when I went, so I was like, um, that was 2010, so I was you know, 54 then at hmm. the time. And then, so then 2011 came, and I thought, well, what can I do now for my big challenge? And I, and I decided to run a, my first marathon. So in May of 2011, I ran the, the uh, Journeys Marathon in, in Eagle River, Wisconsin. And that was 
that's when I started to really realize, now this is the ultimate. (laughs) When you finish a a full marathon, you know you run a a long way. I mean, it hurts. The half marathon, I was a little bit stiff from. But the the full marathon, when I got done with that, I remember my legs hurt for days. Hmm. And by the time I finished, I was kind of... um, a little bit crippled up and not not really running anymore, more or less shuffling and but still move, moving. I never never walked. I was, but I made it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and I just kind of got the um, I, I just really felt real proud of myself. I have to say that you know because I fifty I was fifty five years old, and I realized yeah, I'm fifty five years old. and I ran my first marathon. That's I was I was happy about that. Then that became um, I, then I then I went on this binge where I got so um. Um, I overdid it in the sure. next couple of years, you know, from like 2012, 2014, I ended up with pretty bad injuries from over, overuse injuries. 2013, I didn't realize at the time, but that's, that's when I peaked. You know, you, you always know at some point as you age that your performance will start sliding. And I, but from like, like my first, um, I guess it was like first five, six years of running, I was getting faster and faster and faster. So that by the time I was 57, I was doing pretty good. I was you know, real competitive in my age group. Mm-hmm. And I was taking pride pride in that. And, you know, it's kind of fun that you can, you know, I was never, um, I'd, I'd win I'd win occasionally if, if there weren't many people in the race. <laughs> yeah. if, you go to some, if, you, if you pick a small enough race, you can almost always find a way to win your age group if you... Um, if you um, don't have many people in your age group, and as you get older, the number of people in your age group just keeps dropping. Yeah. So anyway, I I, I peaked in 2013. I ran um, I ran a couple marathons that year where I hit my my personal best. It was like uh, three hours and 41 minutes and seven hmm. seconds was my was, is my personal best marathon when I was age 57. Yeah. And now I'm 10 years older than that, and I now I'm lucky to run. Now I feel if I can run a, a a marathon now in a little bit less than five hours, I feel like I've done pretty good. You know, because yeah. you know, you just no matter how hard you work as you age, you know, your time to start sliding. Yeah. And and of course, then like, um, you know, I I really haven't had these debilitating injuries in recent years either. But I think it's because I haven't pushed myself as hard mm-hmm. physically when I was really trying to hard to like I qualified for Boston twice, and. In the process, though, I think I overdid it a few times and got injured. Then have to lay off and come back after a few months and whatever. Now it's been quite a while before I've, until recently, I really haven't had any um, running-related issues, injuries for like almost five years. Hmm. And so it's only recently again where I overdid it. Overdid it the spring where I ran a half marathon on April 30th and then ran a full marathon two weeks later. And next thing you know, I have a little sciatica problem you know, going on. So I thought, well. I'm 67 years old. You got to a few bumps along the way, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, I, so I, I just find that running, the running community, I always say those are the two things that the, 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 the fact that um, I can go hunting now and I've done a lot of Western elk hunts in the last, you know, 15, 16 years. And I've done um, my spring turkey hunting now where you're always getting up and, and moving up hills and up and down hills. Where it's just kind of satisfying to be able to go up hills and and not worry about um, you know the the physical toll it takes on you. You just go out, go out and do it, and you you, t- you know you, you tire out, but you know it's it's still you're probably better off than you would be if you weren't doing it. Yeah, 
for sure. That's some uh, impressive times. Isn't a young, like I'm trying to think of my broker at, at, at Century 21, I swear he had almost qualified for the Boston Marathon at his age class. And I think that time was like 315 or something oh, like that. It must sure. be, is yeah. there a different age yeah, class? Yeah, every, as you get older, they, they relax the time for you a little yeah. bit. Like right now, for me to qualify at this age, I think I'd have to run like a four hour and 10 minute piece. And I, I just can't do that right now. Yeah. You know. But I feel like I'm in a similar boat as you as you were back then. I, I a little bit will run here and there, not much, very minimal. But if somebody said this is what will allow you to hunt for another ten years, like mm-hmm. as you're talking about that, I'm like, hey, that oh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I should do that. Yeah, because yeah. you know, fishing you can you can keep doing fishing as long as you want, basically. But but um, and hunting, if you do the typical midwestern whitetail hunt, you mm-hmm. can probably do that the way you're doing it right now. You know, just where you know, walk out couple hundred yards to a, a tree stand and sit and whatever it might be mm-hmm. but western hunts as you know it's not something that you can do within a t- typically not i mean i'm sure there's always cases but typically you can't do a western elk hunt or mule deer hunt within a 200 yard walk of your truck no it just doesn't happen you know and my, my typical idaho hunt when i was hunting out there for years every morning i start the day with an hour and a half hike mm-hmm up the hill and i mean it's not a hill it's a damn mountain you know right. and, and, it, and it, it would take me an hour just to get to this first what i called the top and it really wasn't the top it was the first um t- where you get to a point where it was no longer so steep mm-hmm. and, and the first part was so, that first hour is so steep but i do it every morning and then then i think like a lot of, a lot of things that are physical about running you know you just take pride in that that, yeah. you, that, that you can do it mm-hmm keeps you motivated yeah and the, you mentioned the psychological side of it is that more of like just clearing your mind type of thing or what is that no nah, i think yeah it, it might you know it okay. might but i i um i think it's just the, the, the certain satisfaction that you're doing something and you're forcing yourself to do something that's really hard mm-hmm. and you're doing it repeatedly and then you realize the one thing that i, I found the marathon experience gets to for me is I always start drawing parallels to other aspects of my life mm-hmm. and in this idea that it, it teaches you that um, you can suffer a long, lot more than you realized, you mm-hmm. know, and that the, the physical toll it takes on you, you can, you can um, go through that and recover and you will, and you'll be stronger in the long run. And, and I just think that you start doing that with a lot, you start applying that lesson to a lot of things in life or that parallel. Mm-hmm. And you realize, ah, oh, it's kind of like, you know, some of the work you do. You know, you, I, I just knew from um, many years of writing, for example, that I was, when I have to, I can write pretty fast. If there's a, like a gun to my head of a tight deadline mm-hmm. and, there's money on the line, and if you don't make the deadline, you don't get paid. Those kind of things really are great motivators. Yeah. And and then but then when you work on longer stories, longer articles, um, it's more or less you know showing up every day and sitting down and, and working at it. And and it never it never gets easier. It's always becomes a, a thing of the mental discipline it takes to sit down and do something. And I think um, if there is a psychological side where it's um, mind clearing. Just the idea that you set a, you set aside I would set aside time to do it. Yeah. You know, when people say they don't have time to, to run, they don't have time to do physical training, whatever, and I think, well, no, there isn't time for it, but you have to make time for it. You know, mm-hmm. you have to make it give it a priority. And that, that's one of those little stories that the old guys always tell you when you're young is that 
Well, if you're not fishing enough, it probably doesn't, doesn't mean as much to you as hunting does. Yeah. And you realize, well, it's the same with everything. You know, if it's if it matters to you, you'll make time for it. And but don't use time as an excuse because we all we're all busy. Yeah. You, you you show me one successful person who's not busy, who doesn't have any time left in their day. I think well, the person's probably not a successful person because it success. I think people who are successful tend to just maximize every minute of the day doing something that's important yeah not just idling away their time you know and i i don't think i'm unique that way i just found it's kind of the way you i i kind of live in the way i think my my dad lived in the way he worked and just um you know you, you know when it comes down to the physical side of yourself you realize unlike my dad i didn't want to have a pacemaker in my chest at age 64 mm-hmm. you know he lived to be 88 years old but he the last quarter century of his life he was you know with a pacemaker in so that was one of my little life um memories i had of dad was that thinking you know if i don't watch what i'm doing you know i'll end up like that too with a pacemaker and if you're lucky a lot of people at age 64 they have a heart issue and they're dead mm-hmm. you know so i thought <laughs> i start seeing those little you know we don't my family is lucky. Um, typically, both sides of my family live long lives. My my uh, my maternal grandparents both lived to be 80, 88 and eighty seven, I think it was, and my maternal um, grand paternal grandparents lived to be in one lived to, lived to be ninety six, and my grandfather lived to be I think eighty seven. Yeah. And so I think if you don't really screw things up too bad, you should live a while. You know. But I thought, but when I look at look at them, I thought, well, if they can live that long without doing a damn thing, without worrying about anything physically, I could probably do a lot better than that, you know. So I just, all those kind of things run through your mind, yeah, you know, as you as you're um, looking at your options in life. And but I just found it overall, I guess, that the, one of the psycholo- to answer your question, one of the psychological things that was just that I, I feel better. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'm a little bit stiffer these days, and. Um, you know, it takes a while. The, the, the other thing I notice as I'm getting older now is that your balance isn't what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and your reaction time to anything that throws you out balance, you try to react to it and things just don't, I don't think, respond as fast. And so you tend to end up in more awkward physical positions <laughs> than, <laughs> than you remember. You're like falling. Like I fell off a, a, um, a stepladder just only about two feet and I you know, banged myself pretty good. Yeah. But I think. I just remember it was just a slight adjustment and in, in, um, losing my balance that in the past wouldn't have been a big deal. But this time it went all the way down. I think, wow, it's kind of a, you realize it's not something that, um, you, there's not, you can't, you can't fix everything. Yeah. But, you know, about it, by, by maintaining your strength as best you can and your, and your heart rate and those kind of things, I, I, I just know for a fact now living the life that um, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yes. I see a lot of my friends and they, you know, they, they, like one, one of my, I enjoyed the hell out of it where he, um, he was, he's in a, on a strike. He's walking the picket line recently and he wrote to me, he texted me, he says, what kind of, what kind of shoes you recommend for this? He said, I've been on the, on the picket line all, for four hours and I'm nearly dead. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I sent him some advice on how to, you know, basically look for shoes you know, that costs between 120 and 150 bucks. Go to a running store, tell them your problem, and work with somebody who, who can fit your shoe to you properly. Because you, until you bought a few pairs of running shoes and kind of know what your feet like, yeah, you know, you're really rolling the dice if you don't know if you're not working with someone that knows 
running shoes and you know so that was one of my early lessons i learned the hard way in running yeah no that makes sense and i could see initially when you talked about the psychological side i was thinking from just like again a clear your mind side of it but just overall like how you carry yourself yeah uh, how you feel about yourself that makes sense yeah yeah. and and everybody's different i mean there's some people i i I hear quite a few people when i talk to them they'll say like i gotta go run this off yeah and i've i've found that there's been a couple times where i've been stressed about something where i where i would think be nice in the morning to get up and just go for a run mm-hmm. and not worry about this because i when i run i typically listen to podcasts or music and just you know so i can see where that would have that effect but it, i don't need that every day though yeah. it's just something that every now and then i know i get up and i have this feeling that uh be nice to get get outside and just get away from this for for a few hours yeah Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Yeah, no, another, and, and that kind of leads me into, I was thinking, last time we talked we reflected a lot about your career Mm -hmm. your early days as a writer where that got you to and i'm curious not that that necessarily would have made you change but over the last year has anything changed like if you look back in your career has anything changed in how you look at it i guess i'm just curious in in changing perspectives over time yeah as far as the work itself yeah the work itself or even just reflecting back and not having uh, epiphanies about some of the the history or whatever it might be yeah the one thing that's obviously that has definitely changed my mind is that I've been trying to make time the last year. Um, I after my wife and I moved to our new home in um, Eau Claire, it's a, we bought a new a smaller home and downsized and moved from over in central Wisconsin. We we I had a, one of my life my adult lifelong things is I've been been wanting to always have a workshop you know for woodworking. Huh. I'm not a great woodworker, but I, I enjoy it. And I have I accumulated quite a few power tools over the years, you know, band saws. I have a band saw and those kind of things. And I, so I wanted to spend more time out in the workshop at night. And so I have cut back in the last year to about. To, I said I've now cut back to a forty-hour work week. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> as a freelancer for decades, I've worked commonly sixty to seventy hours a week. And now at age six, when I turned sixty-seven, back in January, I um. I just thought I'm not going to work nights anymore unless it's an emergency or something where I, or if I get behind on something and mm-hmm. someone says, hey, uh, you need it, I need it now or, or, or forget it. And they put the gun to my head again. Right. I um, usually take my, my um, nights and, and go out in the workshop. Yeah. And then on weekends, I, I, I still work quite a few Saturday mornings to finish something up, get stuff posted online. And and that, that's another thing that's changed in my career is um online you know the, the social media stuff mm-hmm. those the demands that you have on you um to post your stuff that you write to social media mm-hmm. that was something that 
I didn't, I didn't do that till probably five years ago, yeah. you know, and, but now it's just like a part of the routine now for working. But the thing I don't like about it, because uh, I, I always describe myself as a mercenary, I like to account for every hour I, um, I work that if I'm working, I want compensation for it. And if you don't think that way, you don't, you don't survive as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And so with the, with the social media, I'm always trying to put a dollar value on I can, I can't. Right. I, right. I, I don't know how you, how you, um, how I can do that. And, that, and that's where I think too, in my writing career, I would avoid things where you, where you have a hard time identifying, um, what the payoff is and, 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 the, and the, the standard you're being judged by. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, for my work, I know, um, if I wrote a good article, there's this, this length I knew what I should get for it, you know, and if I couldn't get that price, I thought, well, this won't work for, work for that person or that, that outfit. Mm-hmm. And so you guys kind of had an idea of what your market value was. And it's never high in the outdoor market, but it's, it's you know, if you work out the way I did, and you can make a living at it. And, mm-hmm. I, did, and I did, but now that, now that I'm um, at this point in my life where I think, well, I'm 67 years old. If I'm lucky, I'll have another 20 years of, of pr- productive writing if I'm lucky. Right. But at the same time, I've seen enough people now who I knew once I got into their 80s, which isn't that far away from me any, any longer, I realized they weren't themselves anymore in their 80s. You know, they uh, weren't thinking as, as, as sharply. And I think we're all human. You know, we're all, you know, no, no one gets out alive, all those kind of thoughts. And so I'm hoping I still have, if I think, well, if my if my expectation is 80, well, then I only have 13 years left. And that, yeah. and that, and that in some ways, puts another gun to your head where you just look at life differently as you get older. And, and then I, but I find that, I find that fascinating. Um, yeah. That, Cause it's, it's something I just never thought about before. It's not, and it's not like you sit around, I, it's like I sat around talking, talking to old guys and old women who um, were working well into their seventies as freelancers. Cause most of them had careers where they were in, in, in my era, it was still common for people to go work at a factory for 30 years, get their pension and, and retire. Mm-hmm. And, um, or work in a, in my dad's case, the fire department for 30 years and, and draw your pension and do other things part-time for a while. But no one really worked um, that like that where they just kept pounding away at. But then I I, I, um, I look around and I think, well, there's a lot of people in different fields that look at Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. You know, these people who are I mean, really high-profile people with make who made real serious money in their life they're still working, and, yeah. and, you, and I think, well, there must be something in some of us that um, in our in all our different levels of um, talent, whatever it might be. I, I, and I, just by making a comparison, I'm not comparing myself to Clint Eastwood. I'm just saying that yeah. I can I can see what he's doing though, and respect it. Or I like recently I wrote about Gordon Lightfoot. You know, he worked into his 80s, and I saw him in concert last year in '83. His voice was so weak compared to when he was in his prime. But damn, you see a guy who's still out there working, and it's you can tell it's um, hard on him, but he's still giving it, still yeah. out there touring. I think there's something to be said for that, and I so I kind of hope I'm working into my 80s too. But yeah, yeah but 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 that changes, and mm-hmm. you, you you adapt, and you realize you probably don't have. Um, if you again compare yourself to these, these folks who are you know the only ones I can compare myself to as far as longevity now is, mm-hmm. think well. 
they're somehow getting it done. Maybe they aren't the power they once were, but they're still getting it done. And now, uh, and I like to think that I can still hold my own, and I hope I can anyway. So I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to give it up yet. Yeah. No, it's interesting. If you look back again from that reflective and, and thinking along some of those perspectives is I was listening to the our podcast on the way here. I listened a bit yesterday and on the way here just mm-hmm. to refresh myself what we talked about whenever. And I was thinking that at that age, again, looking back when yeah. you were a, a newspaper writer and then you're doing some sports writing and then you're editing for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine when whitetails are huge and they're still mm-hmm. huge, right? But right. You, were, you were in this point where you were, I don't know how to describe it necessarily, but you're like this... Uh, on the edge of a frontier in a way, like you're doing this crazy stuff that you don't realize in the moment is how big it is or how important it is or how cutting edge it is even in a way. Uh, And then you could draw parallels to like, you're, you're like an explorer in a way or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You never know that until time has gone by and you can look back. Right. But I was just curious for you for that. And then, and then that made me think like, what's that right now? And, and mm-hmm. the quick answer, the easy answer is social media, but there's a part of me that feels that that's not, uh, maybe, I don't know, like yeah, in, in 30 yeah. years, will you look back at the people who are prolific on social media and think, wow, that was uh, yeah. you were an explorer. Uh, yeah. It doesn't I, feel yeah, like see, that. Yeah, I, um, I know I won't be like that in social media. Right. I mean, the thing I never discount though, Logan, is that, um, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I, I remember how skeptical, the publish the print publishing world was that it'd ever be replaced by um, the internet, because mm-hmm. no one knew how to make money. Right. Well, they're still figuring that out, but I think in the in the scope of human lifetimes, though, that's not a long time to no. have figured things out or trying to figure things out. So we're probably still evolving there, and and then same with social media. Just because I haven't figured out how to make money, and I, I I've met a few young people who. Are doing okay with it. You yeah, know, they they got enough of a following, and they, and they they're productive enough, and they're create they're funny enough, creative enough, where they're and they just know how to do stuff. And and I don't see myself doing that. I, I really mm. can't see myself sitting around spending time doing TikTok videos, right. learning how to do it. I I don't. It's not. I don't have a sense of humor that would um make that work either i mean i i have a, I have a good sense of humor at least i appreciate mm-hmm. a good joke when i hear one right but i to sit there and, and crank them out like some folks do and just have all of a sudden you build your following because people just get a kick out of listening to you i think well that's not me i'm a writer yeah and i've always known um i feel pretty good in having the following i have as a writer but then too you realize a lot of people follow you but they don't who knows how often they actually even look at anything you write mm-hmm. and you and i just know from watching how things turn so slowly on instagram and facebook as far as uh, people who hit the like but then actually get to go and hit your link to go read the actual article it's minuscule mm-hmm. how many people go and actually read something you've written and then the, what i was where i find where it really wastes my time though is you go to this trouble of posting your um a link to your content and then people want you to just tell you that the the Reader's Digest version of um, your article, and they'll ask questions like, "Well, you know, how about this? Is this what it's all about?" And I I, I got the point now where I just don't answer because mm-hmm. I think if you want to know, go read the article. Right. <laughs> That's why right. I posted it, yeah. and, and so it's and it's and it's the only way I can. Um, plus, it's the only way I can really judge the. Um, the value of certain of some articles, you know, like you know, some just get 
incredible readership. Another one just sit there, and I think that was a well-written article, but nobody mm. read it. Mm-hmm. And so you think, well, social media doesn't always guide either, you know, what, what the monetary value will be of a certain article. It's just, it's just so many things that um, I, I haven't figured out, and I'm, I'm not now at a point in life, too, where I don't, don't care. I right. just don't care to figure it out. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's working against me, but I think, well, by the same token, I don't have to. I, you know, I think a young person that's starting out in their career better be paying attention to all that stuff mm-hmm. and and um, learning from mistakes and getting better at stuff and knowing where and kind of learning, trying to figure out where it's going. Because, you know, like when I was, um, when, when the internet was changing for me, changing my, my world, luckily I had enough connections and enough of a tra- track record built by that time where as that market changed and, and those different um, um, mediums fell by the wayside, I had other ones I was already engaged in buying my stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I made this transition fairly seamlessly. But the thing too, though, I didn't get out. I mean, a lot of people my age got out. They just, I think they thought, I'm not going to learn all this stuff now. It's 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 a new era. It's, you know, I'm, I, can, I can retire. And I thought... I wasn't ready to retire, and I still don't really feel like I'm ready to retire. Right, <laughs> so. right. No, I, I mean, absolutely, there's a ton of opportunity in the social media side of things, mm-hmm. right? But there's something that lacks, for me personally, it lacks the romanticism about hearing your story. Hmm. Whereas now, again, they're like in 20 years talking about somebody making TikTok videos doesn't seem like it's intriguing. But you on a midnight on Saturday getting a newspaper clip ready for right, a Sunday morning right, paper right. Uh, as you give them. You know, there's yeah. just something different about yeah. that versus yeah. where I'm at. So it's not to uh, discount the opportunity. There's absolutely mm-hmm. opportunity there. But then I think more so like what's uh, outside of the financial component? What's the in 20 years, what will we look back at as? being along the same lines of what mm-hmm. you were doing yeah. is it podcasting is it is it right. still writing is it what i, I, don't, yeah. I don't know but well, you, yeah you look at like podcasting it's i, I remember um i hope, hope i'm not repeating myself but yeah. I, I remember i i first started listening to podcasts or, or downloading these things and um in 2007 yeah i used to have a little ipod shuffle that you had to connect to your computer and then um basically transfer material onto that ipod um and but back then podcasts were basically just uh, condensed edited down radio shows a lot that I was, what I was listening to mm-hmm. you couldn't catch it on you couldn't catch it live so they'd re- repackage it as a podcast but it wasn't really until I think around 2010 2011 you started seeing real serious podcasting um, people going into it with the intent purpose of making a, a product out of it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I pride myself now, and there's a couple of them, I listen to this, um, the Marathon Training Academy. It's a young couple, they're no, they're no longer young, they're in their early 40s already, who have been doing this meet, meet Marathon Training Academy podcast. And I think, I think they started doing it in 2010. Huh. And I've been listening to it from 2011. I, I remember going back, because um, I was first learning to run a marathon in 2011, so I went back and... In those days, you could still download the old episodes and just put them on your computer and then listen to them when you wanted to. And then, I, so you look at all these things and how we, how humans always need that. Humans need to communicate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those little things that I think somehow they'll find a way to, to keep the stuff going. Yeah. And it won't be the way newspapers dominated for a couple hundred years, basically. Yeah. Or at least a hundred years. 
And we never, when I was in college in, in the 19, early 1980s, no one envisioned a time that newspapers would, would collapse the way they did, even though it was only a few years later they, they were in the, in the process of, of going, starting a down, downward trend. Yeah. You know, again, you didn't know it at the time, but it, it was, um, you know, people who retired from like the Milwaukee Journal, when that comes to mind for me because I had friends that worked at the Milwaukee Journal, when they retired, started retiring in the 90s and early 2000s, early to, uh, by late 90s, they thought they had gold in their pocket because they had stock, they bought stock and invested in the, in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. They thought they were set for life. And within 10 years, that stock was worthless, yeah. you know, and that's how fast things change in this world. And I, that was one of my um, lessons is that, you know, if you don't, if you're not really into financial planning and stuff yourself, you better find someone who is because, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of um, things that I'm t- not interested enough to learn for my own good. Yeah. But I, luckily I, I was always, you know, going to a financial planner from the time I started working. Because you just don't, a lot of these things are out there that you think are be there forever. They change faster than ever, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. You talk about the uh, human's need to communicate. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It made me think of, have you read, I think it's called uh, Coming Out of the Ice? Hmm. Oh, man, I should look it up. But it, this gentleman in the, in the gulag up in Russia. No, I'm not. Uh, he, uh, the I'll have, to, I'll have to check it out, but either way, I think it's coming out of the ice. Uh, this gentleman that was in a concentration camp there in this hmm. holding cell, essentially, right? Yeah. Uh, and he uh, was going crazy the entire day. There'd be like twelve guys in this cell, and they all could they all they could do they were only allowed to stare at the center of the floor. They weren't allowed to move. They weren't allowed to do anything. Eventually, like four days into it, he was going insane. Couldn't talk to anybody. Couldn't do anything. He started hearing this tapping noise. Yeah, it's like what's going on. Finally realized, holy crap, people are communicating. Yeah. And then he said they would eventually learn the code. It would uh, tap a few times to get to this bunch of letters within the alphabet, tap a few more to say that this is the group of letters within that bunch. Uh, and he said it was unbelievable how quick he learned it and how quickly you could hear people communicate. You could hear dialects. You could hear, I mean, you, you could predict people's sentences, stuff like wow. that. But yeah. uh, it just made me think of like, yeah, that, that need for communication. Yeah. But then... Yeah, thinking about podcasting, and then uh, I guess that's been a huge part of my world in sales and stuff mm-hmm. like that is just communication. I just think yeah. that there's a huge value in the ability to communicate. But for you, yeah. I guess you've done a, you've done a ton of different podcasts and stuff like that too. But for you, it's then getting it on paper too. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, I I um I I like I'm flattered when people invite me on their podcast to talk about various issues. You know, like. I, I end up on public radio in Wisconsin quite often on conservation issues, hunting and fishing issues, mm-hmm. um, where they come to, they kind of come to me as a as an information source. But in all my day to day work, I have to be cranking out a weekly column. I still do my weekly newspaper column. I'm still writing for Meat Eater. I'm mm-hmm. still writing for American Hunter. And I but, but I have I have intentionally cut back some of the stuff I used to do, and I haven't been um, out. Um, you know, basically beating the streets looking for more work. Like I, like I, you know, as a freelancer, you, you to su- to sustain that in the long run, you always got to be constantly turning over new sources, new new um, opportunities for work, mm-hmm. and looking. I used to, uh, I probably mentioned this the last time I was on. I used to basically look anything that could pay money for writing. I was a good reporter, so that's what I did. I go out and report on it. Yeah, I made money. But now, now that I'm down this at this point in my life. I'm just writing 
these days I say I write for the people who I who I kind of have a commitment to, and I enjoy the the stuff they assign. It's not always about the money, but it's still about the money. Mm-hmm. I, I still won't write. For, I won't give my stuff away. I won't write for free. Right. But um, but I have mocked, but I have walked away from opportunities now for the first time, just because I don't want to be working you know sixty seventy hours a week the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to um, do some of these other fun things and you know take a day a few days off to go fishing. Take a few days off to go. Um, I always took a few days off to go hunting because it was kind of my part and parcel of my career too. Mm-hmm. I had to mix and match that a little bit, but fishing was always kind of fell by the wayside. And woodworking definitely fell by the wayside. Yeah. But then now, as I get to this point in my life, I, like I said earlier about running, the running was so important to me, not just because it was a, a fun thing to do in, in the rate on race day, mm-hmm. but because it was paying real tangible physical benefits and psychological benefits that I knew I couldn't, I don't want to do without. And now, as I'm, I you know, one of the little sayings that run, runners have all these little sayings that you see. Um, online when you're communicating in the running community and one of them is that one day I won't be able to run today's not that day mm-hmm. and I always tell myself that when I because the first mile of, of a if you've run a lot you always know the, the hardest mile is always the first mile yeah. to, get, to get your body get your your heart rate up get everything working in joint all your joints moving and everything and as I got older I realized I really wasn't getting into the um the smoothness of your body getting it, getting back every all the joints operating <laughs> functionally um, without um, um, little, little hitches in your step. I wasn't really getting in, into that level of um, running until I was like at mile four, you mm. know, more mile four or five. You finally started feeling loose. Hmm. You finally felt like you had a rhythm, you know, that because that's one of the fun things that the more you run, you learn little things about your own body that you didn't never realize before and that there actually is a rhythm to running and then you watch the really good runners you realize that what it must be to be able to fly like that where you, everything's just so poetic almost the way they, they run then you look you see a video of yourself running and, you, and you're embarrassed because you yeah. jeez that's what i look like yeah. you know <laughs> so, so you think well you're trying though and you, you know and that's i don't know, like i I always um, say that, well, at least I'm still running, at least I'm still moving, and I, I'm still trying, and that's that's the thing that, that you kind of you know, base it on is that um, your standards, you, you know, your um, performance levels keep declining, but you're still doing it. Yeah. And you, and you, you take pride in that. You know, you might not, I might, I can't qualify for Boston anymore. I'm not, I'm not, my body just isn't up to it anymore, like it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think when I see someone who's my age, though, who still is, I, I just go, "Holy hell!" Yeah. I hope they I hope they I hope they really appreciate what they got there because as you get older, it just gets harder and harder and harder, and you see it in the numbers of uh, people in your, in your age group. Like I said earlier, you, that number just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. And I used to think that when you got this is where, where you get into the weeds a little bit with the running. I used to think that when you, when you got into those um, older age groups and, and the numbers dropped, that your um, your finishing um, order would go higher. Sure. That, you know, well, geez, with only 10 people, I should be in the top two now. When you, when, what you realize, though, is that when you get into those older 60 age groups and even over 70, the people who are still running in their 60s and 70s, 
those are the cream of the crop. Yeah. You know, and so you're not gonna you're not gonna see yourself all suddenly jump to the top because your times don't stand up either. You think, oh, if I can run this time, you know, next year I'll be up in this level in that age group. And you think, no, it doesn't work that way. You yeah. Know, a year from now, you're probably and they're a half a minute slower or whatever it might be. And so there's just kind of this eye-opening thing that all of a sudden you realize, all these little assumptions you had about aging, uh, you know, you're you're just as you're just as uh, apt to um, be the first in, in decline as the uh, as the other folks who are dropping out. You know, there's just a different kind of um, decline there. And, and those folks who aren't declining as fast, they they chances are they were always above above and beyond in their age groups. You know, and and, and for me too, I I don't have the big background of running where I have anything to compare it to because I didn't start running until I was in my 50s. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing some of these guys and their um, women in their 60s and 70s who are still kicking ass out there, I, I wouldn't doubt some of them were running a long time ago, you know, and they they just always had the bodies that, that could take that um, that punishment because, you know, there's benefits to it, but there's also punishment too on, on the on the, um, this. It, it does it does take something out of you. There are less, you know, less impact sports you can do and uh, stay fit but i'm not but i the thing i don't like about um the machines to stay fit on is that yeah there's less wear and tear and that and i know i could ride a bicycle but i've taken enough falls on bicycles too to, to know that that's not exactly a a pain-free approach mm-hmm. you know and a, a, a free a safe a safer approach necessarily you can poor people get clipped off on bicycles you know they're out running riding the countryside scares the crap out of me yeah yeah i like facing the traffic so i can see what idiot is coming toward me Mm -hmm. no it's uh it's interesting to look back on that did you did you qualified for the boston marathon twice did you go run it then as well yeah after qualifying how was that well that that was that was an experience yeah that that is the ultimate in um as far as as far as puffing yourself up and feeling important the people that um, that the, the crowds in Boston are like no other, and I've I've run, um, I've run all the majors now in in our country. I've run hmm. I've run New York. I've run Los Angeles. I've run Chicago. I've run the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C. and I've run Boston twice. And the Boston crowds there's just nothing to compare them to. I mean, mm-hmm. New York is loud. Chicago is loud, but for some reason the Boston people have a way of making you. As an individual runner, feel really important. Huh. I, I think they're just much more tuned into looking at your bib, and looking at your shirt, or looking at your hat, and then yelling compliments to you, and, and yelling praise to you, and making you feel like you're something pretty special. Yeah, you know. And then, the, but like I say, the other cities are all fun. There, I, I, I can't say there's any of them that I would never want to run again, but Boston. God, they have, they have a certain spirit there that um I, I I my little comment I often make is that if you have a question about the human spirit, go go just even spectate at the Boston Marathon. Hmm. It gives you a different perspective. They, they the the fact that for twenty six miles, the, the the streets are lined pretty yeah. much on both sides. There's just a few gaps here and there where there's no like uh, might be a bridge or something where there's just no room for people to stand. Sure, but then and then. One of the funner things that um, occurs at Boston, that when you go through this college campus called Wellesley, Wellesley College, it's an all-female all college. It's at about mile 12, and they call it the Scream Tunnel because these, these college girls are on both sides of the, 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 the road as you run through. 
and they're just screaming and hollering and you can hear it like a half mile away huh. as you're approaching that 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 st section it starts putting the hair in the back of your neck this incredible sound coming out of there then when you're actually in it running through that tunnel it's deafening it's just freaking deafening hmm. and and it, that's fun too because they're all holding signs and some of them are some are pretty racy signs and and they're, they're they always say things like um kiss me or all like the one that in 2016 i remember getting a kiss from a girl um she's her sign says kiss me or i'll vote for trump <laughs> then you're in about another 10 yards and there's another one kiss me or, or i'll vote for bernie yeah and, and then you see you just you know it's just it's kind of fun things they do and, and i guess a lot of them are more racy than that but um then you go on and there's twice in 2016 i was wearing a navy um a yellow navy shirt my running shirt mm -hmm. and twice on two different occasions different crowds of people they'd see it coming and then this one case with four guys sing, they started singing the the, um, the navy song you know, anchors away yeah and they, of course they, they didn't know more than the first two lines you know anchors away my boys anchors away then that was the extent yeah. of their knowledge right. <laughs> <laughs> but then they hear them kind of humming the next couple of lines, but I, I just, you know, kind of stopped and shook their hands and thanked them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So like I say, it makes you feel important. And I, and in, in the Boston Marathon, I had no illusion about um, I'm running a qualifying time for the next year's Boston. I knew I just, I, I remember the first Boston Marathon I went on to with um, some some um, calf issues. Hmm. Not calf, but um, quad issues. Okay. And so I knew I was not going to run my best time to qualify again. So I just kind of, you know, enjoyed the moment. And I'd stop and you know, you know, shake hands with people and take a kiss from the one girl and get you know, shake the guy's hands that were you know singing for me that kind of thing. And then my my wife came along, and my sister, younger sister, and a, and a brother met me at mile thirteen, and then again at the finish line. Yeah, and just you know, you stop and take pictures and selfies and stuff, and it's just a really fun thing. Hmm. So yeah, it uh. You said it, it. It almost changes the way you look at the human spirit, or yeah, something like that, yeah. just because of how powerful it is. Yeah, because you know, you, you, it makes you, it makes you feel a little bit more um, optimistic about the human race. Yeah, I think sometimes you know, especially these days in our the way we've got gotten so partisan in our country, I get so disappointed in this this um, we fight each other and, yeah. and try to beat each other instead of just instead of just having a, a good. Um, competitive spirit that moves us forward with this competitive, uh, competitive spirit that seems to want to destroy the other person and it's just not just not healthy it's not sustainable mm -hmm. whereas you know you're on the boston marathon and one of the things is you know i'm changing the topic a little bit one of the things i always admire about hockey and the little traditions in hockey that i've always thought that's the way sports should be is that these two teams are fighting for three periods just going at it and back and forth and just sweating and the line changes it's fast paced mm -hmm. you know you know the game you played yeah. it and then at the end no matter what the outcome they they skate by each other and shake hands even if it's just a, a quick thing but i think it's a spirit of sportsmanship that you know that win or lose you still show up and shake the other guy's hand you know i think that's just a basic thing of what this should be about yeah. and i think we've lost that too much in our politics in this country yeah. but then i say you go to boston 
and you see all these people, and, and I doubt any of those people are asking each other, are you a Democrat or Republican? Mm-hmm. And if they are, they're, they're more or less joking about it, you know, because politics, I always say, should be fun. It used to be fun. Mm-hmm. It was always, um, it was always, we always had our sides, but we, you'd shake hands when it was over, you know, that kind of, that kind of spirit. Yeah. So that, that, that's all I was getting at. I, I just really, I just remember when that race ended, the first time I ran the Boston Marathon, I thought, God, that was, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> it was almost like this life-affirming experience that I'd never ex- you know, felt before. Yeah. No, it's interesting because, again, a lot of what I'm interested in is perspective. And that's why I asked mm-hmm. you, okay, in the last year, has your perspective changed? Mm-hmm. Because I think perspective's everything, yeah. right? How yeah. you look at your life, how you look at this incident, how you look at everything is totally dependent or, or is a huge factor on how that affects you physically, oh, mentally, definitely. psychologically, whatever. Yeah. But also learning, like, I really enjoy re- reading a lot of history books like mm-hmm. this one, Young Men and Fire, or talking about that book coming out of the ice, because it gives you mm-hmm. a perspective that you could never get yeah. other than stepping outside your bubble. And one of those things is, again, we talked about that coming out of the ice where they're communicating there. He was, uh, his father worked for Ford. They went over to Russia to open up this new Ford plant. His, his This was uh, Cold War era during, uh, again, I should brush it up on some of the facts, but either way, in the concentration camp is where he ultimately ended up there. But first he was there to work on the, in the Ford factory, his father was. Hmm. And he was in the in the uh, different cabs for years, eventually got exiled north to Russia. He's living in an igloo with his wife and his daughter. Uh, and his daughter would ask him, they would live on like cabbage and, and rats and, and nothing. I mean, they would hmm. barely make it through the year. Occasionally a potato that they would share, something like that. Yeah. But he'd have a line in there and he used this as a way to reference things throughout the whole book. But his daughter would ask him, they'd always talk about food back in Detroit. Hmm. His daughter had no hmm. idea any of it. His daughter would ask him, dad, in Detroit, could they eat a whole potato? Yeah. And he'd say two potatoes. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. That, that, that they would dream about yeah. eating. What would it be like to eat a whole potato? Yeah. In today's day of excess, you realize, holy crap, we've got it made, yeah. you know? Oh, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I've I've benefited from. I, I know, I again, one of those things you don't know at a time. But um, growing up when I did, where I was born in 1956, yeah. and when you start doing the math, you realize, you know, that was only 11 years after World War II. is only, um, what, 26 years after the Great Depression had started, or, mm-hmm. or that was after the, that stock market crash at 29, it was 27 years after that. And so, g- given that the proximity of those years, I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but realized, well, my grandmother, who lived in our family, lived with our, our family, um, she raised kids through that era, mm-hmm. through the Depression era, and she lived with us. My dad, mom grew up in that era. They they um, went through the the, um, the 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 scarcities of World War II, where everything was being rationed, and so you can see why they were so tight in in how they went about spending their money, mm-hmm. how and how they saved. And my grandmother never threw anything away. And then she'd tell stories about stuff. And and at the time, I thought they're kind of throwaway stories. You just kind of listen to them. You really didn't think about what they really meant. But then as you get older. You start appreciating that um, uh, she was telling that story, and maybe just telling it for to tell a story. But chances are, she also had in there um, some lessons she hoped you'd pick up on. Maybe not now, but later. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I definitely did, you know. And I I look back on that now, and I I can't when I see a braided rug. My grandmother spent her entire love um, braiding rugs, 
And then um, we have a couple in our house that she made. We start thinking all that, that idea of not wasting even a piece of cloth, but taking all these rags and stuffing them in bags until you uh, had enough of them to wa- send them through a washer and then sew them up in the, in the usable pieces for to breed into a rug. Mm-hmm. I um, find myself doing that with, with my woodworking projects where I um, every time I have little scraps of wood, I throw them in this one pile if I think they can be um, glued together with other pieces of wood in the lamination um, projects that end up looking pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Basically, rather than just burning it up, I now realize, and I caught myself one day, I finally realized, you know, that's just a male version of Granny building her, her rugs years ago. <laughs> yeah. Never never thought about that. I thought somewhere in your head, this stuff probably takes root, and you just don't even think about it. It's just, and all of a sudden, it's, it finally hits you one day, <laughs> decades later, that... Well, this is just a different version of what she was doing. You know, right. there's nothing. I, well, that, talk about perspective too. Is that the idea that there's not too many original ideas out there? No. You know, humans kind of recycle their ideas over and over again, and that makes me think of this uh, Mark Twain quote where he said there, Twain one time wrote there there hasn't been an original thought since Adam and Eve. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and the longer I live, the more I think about that. You know, that I means probably right. You know that. We, we think we're so original and so clever and think, well, some people are more clever than others and uh, find a new way to look at things or find a new way to say something that's been thought before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's probably, that idea's probably been there, been there before and just that some people, it comes to mind a lot faster and they're wittier than, than the rest of us. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, to me, it's just kind of fun to live through that stuff and see it. Yeah. No, for me, I guess that's kind of the whole theme or goal of this podcast for me is just that these... I don't know, these bigger questions, like more philosophical, like what's important? Why do you do what you do? Mm-hmm. What, how do you treat people? And again, how do you look at your life? All this kind of stuff is something I'm not always wrestling with in a way, but something I think about yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and I think through talking through other people, I learned how do you approach that? Why do you think about it this way? Mm-hmm. How do you look back in your career? Uh, because through that, you just learn. Because like you said, I mean, you could be stuck in your own head thinking about this stuff, whereas other people just like you said, uh, all this stuff's been thought about, you know, yeah, yeah. and you can talk through and learn about uh, different people and why they approach things the way they mm-hmm. do or whatever. But it's, uh, and then reading too, that's the same thing. You get to read about a cowboy back in the day or whatever, or these smoke jumpers in Young Men and Fire by Norman McLean, And it just puts you in this different perspective. And it yeah. really, I think, informs, makes you appreciate where you're mm-hmm. at and uh, lets you apply metaphorical lessons from them to your own current life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I I um I find myself quite often thinking that I feel lucky to be at my age. That um, one of the things that we all go through, I think it hits some people. Some doesn't hit other ones, but I went to a high school reunion, our fortieth high school reunion, back in two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. and I remember um, when I walked in this one room that had like a little. Um, rows of pictures of classmates who have died already hmm. and i counted them up and i think i think i counted up like 40 some some former kids that i mm-hmm. went to school with are gone already and i realized that's nearly 10 percent of our class yeah you know and didn't make it to um didn't make it to 60 and then then i then i, I probably said this the last time i was on one of my dad's common thoughts that he don't, I only heard him say it once, but it stuck with me, was that if you live to be 60, you can't complain. Yeah. 
And he said, a lot of good people don't make it to 60. Huh. And I always thought that was kind of too young. But then I started, when I went, went to my class reunion and counted up all those people up there and realized, geez, you know, that was um, you know, 50, 58 years old, I think I was at, was at the time. Yeah. I thought, yeah, they didn't even see 60. Right. You think they want, want to be 60? Of course they want to be 60. They yeah. want to check out in their 50s or 40s or 30s. And my... um. My mom's brother had a. He's he's gone now. He's he he died in his early nineties. He had a great line that I, I've been repeating a lot lately, and it was, um, "How many people? Well, who who wants to live to be ninety? Yeah, that was his question. Yeah. Says, Anyone who's eighty nine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I always thought that is that's good. And Andy Rooney, the the writer, um, yeah, he, he was on sixty minutes for years doing these little commentaries at the end. But he was a great journalist. Um, in his time, um, another, another guy that changed, you know, he, he capitalized on his um, wit late in his career on 60 Minutes. But Andy Rooney had a great line, too, about aging is that um, not he, when he turned 80, he wrote, wrote this column and he wrote in there something to the effect that, you know, I never I never thought I'd live to see age 80. But now that I'm here, I'm in no hurry to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how, how I feel. I, I know running and i know fitness won't guarantee um immortality it can't bring because no one lives forever but you know that the thing i will always say is but you can fight it every inch of the way yeah you know and you should at least yeah. i think you should i i don't i don't want to i don't want to go quietly no right <laughs> is it something you, we talked earlier we hinted about the morbid curiosity around death uh-huh. is that fit into that same thing is it because of a uh, perspective or something like that, for, or for me, it is. I, okay. I think it's part of. I think it's been with me forever. Yeah. I, mean, I just, I've always had a um, certain fear of it and, and worry about it. And and as I got as I got older, though, I I, I just came to accept it. Mm-hmm. But I was still always curious about it. And I, um, but you know, it goes back to things like I remember losing a a, a childhood friend. When I was twelve, you know, I think he was only, I think no, I was, well, I was eleven, and I think he was like eight, mm-hmm. eight, nine years old. I fell off. He just fell off his dad's um, working. He's playing his dad's uh, service station up in the tire racks, where they kept all the the um, tires for people's cars, and just slipped and fell and landed on his head and was dead a day later. Unreal. And those kind of things, I remember being really shook by that, and just that, you know, geez, when's my turn? All that kind of thing. And then, um, and then as you, as I got older, I was always kind of fascinated with the idea that, you know, it can happen at any time. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how safe your society is. And But then at the same time, I remind myself how lucky we were to be living in this country, at, in this era, with modern medicine, mm-hmm. all the kind of things that we benefit from. And, in, and still there's no likely there's no likelihood we'll be dead at an early age, but it's, it doesn't mean it won't happen. I mean, car accidents, you name it, you know, it's all these kind of things that, that you can't predict. And and so I, I, I try to really go through life the idea that um appreciate what you have because you you really should. Yeah. You know, especially if you live in the United States, you should you could everywhere else in the world basically does not enjoy the things we enjoy. So that's where I get um where I worry about our country, where I think we don't appreciate things as much as we should. Yeah. At least from my perspective. So, yeah. No, on the, uh, 
on the morbid curiosity of death, this one here, Young Men in Fire, this story is crazy. I'll give you kind of a little breakdown. Uh-huh. There's, I can't remember if it's like 15 of them, but a group of uh, firefighters back in like the 40s and 50s, okay. they called themselves the Smoke Jumpers. Okay. Uh, that was their name. So basically yeah. the, the Forest Service would hire these guys. <clears throat> if there was a roadless area they needed to get into, they would fly them in there, they'd parachute down, and they'd with shovels and pickaxes yeah. and whatever else, they would cut lines, they would do, you know, controlled burns to stop the fire, whatever else. But in this one here, they were in a pretty rough part of the Rocky Mountains and same deal got flown in there. And it was a pretty routine fire from what it looked like. Mm. Uh, and, and in reality, most of the fires they fought were pretty small because they were so good at it. Mm-hmm. They would get them out before they got became a huge fire, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this Norman McLean who wrote a river on through it, which is just unbelievable. Basically breaks down and I'm only halfway through it, breaks down the whole event the story talks about it. And then eventually I think he kind of reflects back on his own life while also checking it out, but I haven't really got there yet. Um, but these guys landed on this fire again, supposed to be a pretty routine fire, but it had the perfect combination of everything, the heat, the wind, the fuel, whatever else to make what they call a blow up where it's just uncontrollable, Mm, insane heat. And it just travels very fast. Um, but these guys, Again, 15 of them get there. They're trying to get down to fight, and all of a sudden they realize this thing is way bigger than we thought it was. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to run back up the hill. Their leader, Dodge, is his name, is getting them back up the hill. Eventually he realized, guys, we're not making it to the top. And never before in the Forest Service history has this been recorded. He started a fire, jumped inside of it, and everyone looks at him like, are you nuts? Like, what are you doing? He's like, guys, get in here. And either they didn't understand him or they didn't trust him or whatever. This has never been in their training. Just all of a sudden the guy lights a fire and jumps in it. Uh he does that. The rest of the guys are like, no, screw that. We're still trying to get to the top of the ridge here. The three of the youngest guys start running up the ridge. The youngest, quickest, fastest. The rest of them all end up getting burned and killed. These mm. three guys are running up and he's talking about it. And it's unbelievable how poetic he gets with it. But there's a little crack in this reef in this vertical or this horizontal shelf in the ridge. And they don't even know if it's the top of the ridge. They can't see. They can feel the fire right on their back. And they're going through it. And the first two jump through it. And for whatever reason, the third guy didn't like what he saw with that crack in the reef or whatever. He tried to parallel it and go around. And he burned right on that base of that reef. Those other two guys made it through. So the only three guys that survived was Dodge, the guy who lit the fire and jumped inside of it. And the two quickest, toughest guys that made it out through that gap in the crack. Now, but The guy that jumped inside the circle. Yeah. How, how'd that work? Uh, was, what, what was the thinking there? And, so essentially it was like a... Um, uh, you start the fire, let it burn for, if you had 15 seconds to let it burn and in the conditions, it burned a pretty wide swath right away. Hmm. Uh, but it's a, a quick, relatively cool burn compared to what's coming behind him. Uh, and, it, and what it does is it burns the fuel there. And then when the fire is coming up, it'll burn around him. So he jumps into the fire, literally into the fire. I'm sure he had all kinds of burns and whatever yeah. else, but it was way better than the behemoth that was. I never thought that. Come behind him. In the moment. Yeah. And again, yeah. never part of their training, yeah. never part of their history. Yeah. He, he, I'm just to the point where he's breaking down where there's some historical accounts of Native Americans that would do that on these hmm. grass, quick moving ga- uh, grass fires where they would light a fire and jump inside huh. of it. But in their training, nothing. Yeah. So unbelievable that this guy with no training, no nothing, yeah. maybe some Came folklore yeah. in the heat of the moment yeah. with a burning There's fire a hundred yards behind him, you know, in the heat of the <laughs> moment. Yeah. Uh, but just hearing that story is just unbelievable. Uh, when he's talking about it and he, he's got some quotes about that crack, which maybe we'll talk about, but it, he, he also talks about these smoke jumpers being a type of uh, like smoke jumping is a thing they had to do. I should just read you the quote, and I'm mm-hmm. curious if anything like this applies to your life, just because mm-hmm. I, again, the romantic side of me thinks about thinks about these things too, is like, here's the quote here when he's talking early on about why they smoke jump or what it is. 
He said, for many former smoke jumpers, then smoke jumping is not closely tied up with their way of life, but it's more something that is necessary for them to pass through and not around. And once it's unmistakably done, does not have to be done again. The it, the it is with is within and is the need to settle some things with the universe and ourselves before taking on the business of the world, which isn't all that special or hard, but takes time. The it is something special within that demands we do something special and it could be within a lot of us. Hmm. Wow. Talking about basically you, there's just something about it. They have to do it. Yeah. And once yeah. it's been done, they don't need to go back again. Yeah. You know, yeah. did you ever do anything in your life like that? That felt like this just has to be done and once not, you've not not really um, okay at least not yet um yeah i mean the closest i can come is things like um qualifying for a marathon and then qualifying for boston and then but but in those cases um i always wanted to do, do it again yeah you know, i never i've never um i've never understood people who run like one marathon and then just say well i, I checked it off my list and I, i'm done now Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, never, I can't quite relate to that, but I, I can I can understand it, though. Yeah. For something such an intense thing, I mean, we were doing a pretty dangerous work, yeah. jumping out of airplanes yeah. and stuff like that. But here's a little snapshot when they're going through the, the that reef that I talked about. It. Yeah. Uh, I said that to them, the reef was another one of those things, perhaps the final one, that kept coming out of the smoke to leave no place to run from death. They can remember feeling sorry for themselves because they were so young. They also tried not to think of anything they had done wrong for fear it might appear in the flames. They thought that God might have made the opening and might take it away again. Besides, the opening might be a trap for the sins of youth to venture into. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> he, he was a hell of, Well, see, that's where I, I, re, I listen to something like that. Yeah. And in all seriousness, I think <laughs> my little common sayings I had at work when I had when I had a staff was, you know, we'd, we'd come across something where somebody wrote something really good. Yeah. Or somebody took a really good photograph and we'd all just kind of marvel at it. and I'd, my common response was well we can't all be mozart yeah and I, I always think there's a certain value in understanding that um we might not have a unique talent mm-hmm. but um one thing we can do in many cases we can we can probably outwork most people yeah and and, and um make up for a lack of talents in other ways and and or, or try to, or at least um, I, I like the idea of always at least striving mm-hmm. to to, um, to do better, and and maybe not maybe you aren't the the um, the Brett Favre's of the world, the Aaron Rodgers of the world, the top athletes, the top Olympians, but damn it, you can try in your own way to be the best version of you. I, I do believe in that, you know. Yeah. I, I um I, I love it when I'm like when I I I just, I just ran the Rochester. Minnesota Marathon back in uh, May, on May 13th. I remember uh, like an hour, close to an hour after I finished, I was heading back to my daughter's house, driving back to her house, and I saw a young lady out on the marathon course, and I knew when I looked where she was, and I saw, I was able to put in my mind whereabouts, and at that point, she's probably about a mile and a half from the finish line. And I thought, here she is. I've been done for an hour now, and she's still out here plugging away. And I, I felt so proud of her. I thought she's still giving it. Mm-hmm. You know, she's still trying. She's not quitting. She's trying. So I tapped the horn a couple of times, tried to give her attention, but she was so. Yeah. I think she's probably had the earpods, and so she couldn't hear. You know, as but I was trying to, in my own little way to shout some encouragement to her because I thought 
I admire that. You know, of course, of course, that's the same token. One of my things I I used to have. I wish, I wish I had kept it. When I was in the Navy, there was this um, cartoon, like a one-page cart, full-size page mm-hmm. cartoon of a um, a big eagle swooping in on a mouse, and the mouse is standing there, standing his ground, giving the the eagle the finger. Yeah, and the caption down below says. The last great act of defiance. <laughs> now I thought, boy, I can relate to that. There's a lot of times in life where I just thought, okay, you've got me, but you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not gonna go down quietly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, at least give you the finger before you get your last shot in on me. You know, right? Because <laughs> right. I, because I think you know, um, there's so many things, little challenges we have in day to day life, and I, I used to always be amused when um, someone in my writing would get mad at me. And then this one guy, um, I remember I was at a bar. I was covering an event. And I, just, I went into the bar after the, this um, meeting was over. I didn't go in there to talk. I didn't go in there to confront anyone. But I, but you know, a lot of guys in that room were people who'd just been, been in that, involved in the meeting I was covering. Mm-hmm. And one of them walked over and started talking to me. And I thought, well, he just wanted to, you know, Give give me his thoughts and let me let me know how much he disagreed with some column I'd written about this this particular issue and and I started off fairly friendly, but after a while I I just told basically told him I did, I just don't agree with um what he's saying mm-hmm. that that um you know you have your perspective here but you know you really don't, I said something like you really don't have that many facts to back up your perspective mm-hmm. you have an opinion opinion we're all entitled to opinion but I said when I write I have to have facts to back up my opinion right and that's and he, and he took offense at that that mm. he that somehow i was um trying to belittle his opinion because i didn't think he had facts but they, they clearly did not have facts but anyway so his way of resolving the situation then was to he's a big guy he's probably, he's probably about 15 years older than me big real big farm guy mm-hmm. and but he had this big ham fist yeah i remember him waving under my nose and said you know you might be smarter than me but I can still take you on, take you out, or something like that. Yeah. And, I, and I said, well, "George, what would that prove?" Yeah. And, and that was, you know, really, I was just kind of, kind of surprised that he would um, go from a, a friendly conversation that I didn't start, that he came over, came over, and, and he started talking to me. Yeah. And then when I when he couldn't get me to agree with him, or at least. Um, Agree that he had a, a valid point because I don't think he had a valid point. His his ultimate thing was to basically threaten me physically, right? And I thought, well, this this is not really a fair fight here because you're like six foot two or three, probably outweigh me, outweigh me by, by at least seventy five pounds, and I wouldn't be able to sustain a punch from a guy that size, right? So so what's the point here? You know, what's this going to prove? Yeah, that you're that you're somehow. You, you win because you can beat me up. What does that prove? So, so that kind of thinking always kind of it, it always it always puzzles me that people resort to that. Yeah, you know, I think it's not like a sporting contest for two guys climbing a ring after training for it, or at least um, willingly climbing into the ring. Like a, Navy had these things called smokers. Hmm. It was like a three round boxing match. Is you can just you know basically show up and um, you know um, volunteer. I think I can't remember how to even set those things up to determine who would fight who, but basically, you know, you, but when you climb in that kind of ring, you know, well, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. This isn't. These aren't weight classes. These are um, two guys showing up, and 
they're trying their best to match up the, the fighters, the boxers, with you know, people of, of equal size anyway. But but then you get into the whole thing of skill, and some of these guys you realize it was fun. It was, it was for me. It was, it was fun watching just because you were sometimes amazed that some clown would climb into the ring with a guy that on the first couple of seconds, you realize this guy's a trained fighter. Yeah. He's done this before. Yeah. What are you doing in the ring with him? You're nuts. Right. And it, and sometimes the guys are smart enough to realize this is nuts and they quickly get yeah. out of there. Yeah. <laughs> so just put their hands up and say, oh, not, I've had enough of this. But yeah. usually they'd stubbornly take, just get the crap knocked out of them until they, <laughs> they just called the fight, you know? Yeah. But I used to always, admi- I used to always, it was part of me would admire that that willingness to just take a chance like that, you know, for the physical confrontation. But thought, man, that's a different that's a different way of looking at life or leading <laughs> leading <Yeah>. life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I've gone way off topic there, but that's well, no, I, no, I can appreciate it. And even the fact again, we're not all Brett Favre, we're not right. all Norman McLean or whatever else, right. right? But I still just sit there and like. Okay, that paragraph there where he's talking about the this this gap might be a place where the sins of youth to venture into. Yeah, yeah. I could think for thirty years oh, I'll never yeah. come up with that. Yeah. So, but for him, is that natural? Is yeah. I mean, it must be. Yeah. That, that, those those kind of observations, I think, are God given. Yeah, you know, where it's just something you're born with, and you can you can you can fine tune and hone that sure. craft. But to come up with those thoughts, those combination of words, yeah, that's something in, incredible that right. I I just. I could think for days and not come up with that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, but I think too, well, you know, some of these writers are, I think sometimes people, people just don't give them credit for the simple fact they're very smart people. Yeah. And for, for whatever reason, they, they've applied their smarts to, to the, you know, to writing and um, getting, putting, putting down something down for, um, for posterity that's mm-hmm. for folks to think about because they are, they are about as original as it gets, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you know, they, they defy my common, my um, comment earlier about no original ideas. I think, well, that might not be an original idea, but it sure is a hell of a unique way of phrasing it. Yeah, you know, geez, it, it just, I, I just don't make those kind of connections. That you know, as a, as a writer, and I, and I think that's why I say I'll never, I'll never put myself in a, a high, high class of, of writers. I mean, God, you know, people who go write the classics and um, consistent. The one thing I can do, though, in the outdoor arena, I can I can crank out articles, I can mm. crank out columns, right? And, and I and I made a living at. It. I think well, I take pride in that. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. it's not. It's not. But that uh, I don't kid myself. So I don't. I don't think that I, that hundred years from now, people are going to be reading a collection of my works, mm-hmm. <laughs> the greatest stuff of Pat Durkin. And, uh, I don't foresee that right. because I've seen already you know, in my career. I've seen um, people that, who I think are phenomenal newspaper columnists that 20 years later you don't no one's ever heard of them already yeah and the one that comes to mind for me is mike reichel he's a chicago uh, newspaper columnist hell of a writer one of the all-time he, he, i'm sure he's if they ever have a hall of fame for newspaper columnists he'd be right right there in the top of the class and um hl menken another great newspaper guy from in back in the early 1900s i think he, I think he wrote for the baltimore Baltimore Sun, but just these phenomenal people, just great creative writers who are productive. And they, mm-hmm. they, um, they're real um, men of the people. They go on and hang out at the wharf and write stories about these these workers on the wharfs and 
and Rikos thing, the people hanging out in these saloons of Chicago, you know, and just phenomenal stuff and hmm. great, great insights into humans, you know, and then our, our attitudes and our beliefs and that kind of stuff, just great commentaries on the day-to-day life of these of um, everyday people, but in a way that makes, makes it kind of heroic and just fun to read. And, yeah. it, 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 you know, like one of my things, you know, that it restores your faith in humans that there's a lot more to us than some people um, say that. And we, but, Without also that we don't have to be assholes to everyone. Mm-hmm. You, can, you know, you can <laughs> you can be different, but you can be, be productive and fun and be a good force in society. Yeah. Those are the kind of things I I believe in. You know, and I, I I don't like to see us fighting about stupid stuff. You know, that I want I want our country to be around a hundred years from now or two hundred years from now, and that my my grandkids um, have a can can lead fun productive lives too. You know, and I think that's what. I think we people should live, you know, and try to help each other out, other out instead of just trying to um, annihilate each other. You know? Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. They, do you, I, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. Do you know, do you follow Jordan Peterson at all? Are you familiar I, with him? I, I, I am vaguely aware of him. I listened to a couple of his podcasts. Yeah. Okay. He's got a, he's a psychologist out right, of Canada, right. uh, talks about a lot of different things, yep. but we were talking about communication earlier. And one thing he talks about is that everybody should learn how to write because writing is really just communication and that the most, uh, how do you say it? the most powerful people are those who are articulate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's oh, the case definitely. or not, but yeah. that's how he, yeah. he worded it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but then he talks about early on writers, like he, when he has people that come through his classes and they're writing, it's basically just a list of cliches, their mm-hmm. entire paper. Yeah. Yeah. And mo- and really most people's thought processes mm-hmm. and most people writing is just thinking and, and writing in cliches in yeah. a way, right? Yeah. Uh, that once you can break beyond that and actually get to some original thought, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was just thinking that, like with Norman McLean here, is there is it like that? I mean, obviously he's broken beyond mm-hmm. the yeah. the cliches and he's working in originality. But obviously, like is it is it that and a combination of skill? But I've also thought to myself, like if somebody like this, are they that much further in tune with themselves, or they've they've worked through? Uh, I don't know what it would be, but somehow do mm-hmm. they get to a certain point where they can be that original beyond yeah. skill, yeah. beyond? Uh, time and repetition is there something there where or even i've thought like okay if you if you were going to write yourself if you're going to write a fiction story even a a story about your life but truly candid Mm -hmm. truly talk about everything not necessarily giving all the details but when you are talking about things you're being 100 percent honest to yourself and you're removing that protective layer where you're you know you're gonna you're gonna keep your insecurities to yourself or Mm -hmm. whatever right is what would that look like yeah I don't know. I just yeah. thinking about all that combined. Is that how you get to a Norman McLean? Well, I th- yeah, I, I, I have no. I, I couldn't begin to comment on Norman McLean because yeah. I just think, realistically, he's on a different level than I'm at. Sure, and a higher level. Yeah. But but I but I, but I bet you there are certain things that he really worked hard at. Yeah. And one of them is busting out of things like cliches. Yeah. Um, I remember a professor I had in college when I and it was really the first time I really ever thought about it was cliches i never really thought about how easy it is to fall back on them all the time Mm -hmm. and i remember writing a paper in 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 this college um um uh, literature class and he'd every time he wrote every time he'd see something that was cliche that that big red ink in the in the margin Hmm. you know cliche cliche and you start, and you, all of a sudden you start becoming more aware of it, making yourself more aware of it. And I, I see some writers who have, you know, they've 
probably made a living at it. They probably retired and had a living at it. But every time I read their stuff, I know it's gonna be it's gonna be packed with cliches. Yeah, and and it's because it's so easy to fall into it, you know. And and, and I think the great writers, they um, find when they see a cliche forming in their in their fingertips, or they stop and, and they make sure they don't use it and they rethink it in a way. And, and I think some people have the ability to rethink in a way that, God, they turn a phrase. You know, you got those kind of, um, when you read something, you go, that's a well-written sentence. As I, as I, as I wish I would, the thing I would say is, God, I wish I'd written that. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> right. it, it, there's some really great things that people come up with, you know. Yeah. And I, but, because you like, if you read like um, all the Leopold, I think he's just this supreme, supremely gifted writer. But, but at the same time, I find his reading, his writing almost a little too flowery, hmm. where I think, ah, I like, I like more of a edge to it, edge hmm. to the writing. And that's where I, I, if I just sit down and read somebody this afternoon, I'd probably choose um, you know, Mike Reichel over, over um, Leopold. Because mm-hmm. you know, Reichel made me think too, but he did it in a way that was a lot, lot, lot more gritty a lot more down to earth and just a lot more punchy. And where Leopold, I always, I always feel he's like eating. Um, for me, it's like eating wedding cake. Yeah, I can eat it a slice at a time, but I can't spend an afternoon pounding away at it. You know, it's just, it's just too rich. Yeah, it's a real. It means just a sort of supreme rich writer. You know, where hmm. I, where you have to, you have to stop constantly be thinking about what he's, what he's saying. Yeah, and it, and it's not like. It's not hard to comprehend, but you still have to, for me anyway, I have to stop quite often just kind of think about what he's saying. Yeah. Whereas on the the best newspaper columnists, I think they write in a way that you hardly ever have to pause. You just kind of, you just keep enjoying it. You're reading it and just, and it's, and it's, um, it's smart. It's, it's unique. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's the fun thing about reading too, is you, um, once you start recognizing what you like reading and why you, you then you find yourself reading different kinds of authors too that write in a different style that you know I can't begin. You know, one, of the, one of the things I I I've got kind of chuckle at so often is when when people for writing advice, whether it's a teacher or a coach, they'll say find your own voice. Mm-hmm. I never quite understood what the hell that meant because I thought well I don't know I can't, I, I can't imitate. I can't imitate writers. I can't imitate the spoken word. I can't do accents. Maybe some people can, but I can't. Yeah. And so I, I thought, well, what other voice would I have? And the only thing I can come up with over time is what that means to me, for me is that um, I just try to write my honest thoughts as they form, and I, I try not to overdo it. I try not to be maudlin because I, I, I think I'm a very sentimental person. But I don't want to. I don't want to make, make people gag in the process of reading my stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they think, oh, you know, geez, this is way too much. Yeah. Because I think I think um, when you overdo the the, um, the the huggy, lovey type stuff, it makes most people uncomfortable. Yeah. But I think I think we can talk about love and um, the the human spirit, all those kind of things like that, without being maudlin. Because I think most of us just don't relate to that. Yeah. At least I don't. So I. I, I just find it um, fun, a fun topic to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, I've um, one fun thing I've done a couple of times in my in recent years. I've had relatives ask me if if um, I got or um, one of those on, online uh, minister things where you're ordained online, basically, so you can do a wedding service. Yeah. So I've done like three weddings, you know, where I've 
stood up and uh, said a few words and married people. Yeah. And I find that fun because, you know, you get to say a few words, a few of your own thoughts. And one of the little things I've um, come across, and I, I, I don't put this in the, in the wedding, but it made me th- what made me think about was um, preparing a wedding presentation, you know, about I really believe in the institution of marriage. I, I think it's unique. It's not a, um, exactly, um, when you look at the animal kingdom, you know, mammals, um, deer don't hang around after they mate, you know, they procreate and go on to the next. And, but, um, so it's kind of in some ways unnatural that, that we choose a lifelong partner, but at the same token, that's what makes it so unique that mm-hmm. we do something that might not be natural, but we do it anyway, because it's, it's a good way to, I think, to, um, live, live with each other and make the best of situations, learn, you know, that, how to compromise and, you know, have them see you at your worst moments and still love you those kind of things but the thing that was always fascinating about, about the whole process is that um my little thing that guides my thinking so often is it's so easy to define something like trust we know what trust is there's no mistaking trust mm-hmm. but you can sure mess up on love mm-hmm. you can sure confuse a lot of things with love you think you're in love how many people think, think they're in love but no one has any any doubts about trust so that's always my advice to um to marry to people when i married them is you know worry about the trust huh. as long as you have your trust and you're building on trust you'll you'll be okay but trying to um you know base everything on love itself think well you can confuse a lot of things with love yeah and so i so my little thing i say is you can't confuse trust with lust yeah, but you can confuse lust with love very easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people have done that. Yeah, <laughs> and you can't put that in the, in the wedding vows, but it's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. If this is all about, you're, if you've mistaken lust for love, this probably won't last. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Anyway, I'm now I'm way off the topic again, but yeah, I I I think there are certain I, I like little I like traditions, I like um, longevity, I like things that aren't always apparent on the face as being a good thing but then the more you delve into them you you start realizing no oh, geez this is interesting you know it goes against our nature maybe um our, our base nature but for our, our overall view of the world and how we get along with each other and this is you know, marriage is probably a very important thing yeah and strong and people and people do respect it you know when 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 people see 50 years of marriage you know, and they think, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't always fun. I'm sure those days you, you called each other names, at least behind your backs, but you still stuck with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something, something to be said for that. And, is there, then, and then, too, there was cases where they, these people really shouldn't have been married, and they shouldn't have stuck with it. I mean, it just, it, it was killing each other. They're killing themselves, so it took courage to get out of it. And yeah. so I think how, how we all go through life trying to figure these things out, I, I think it's kind of a fun part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in there. Yeah. Uh, you had talked earlier on about cliches. Do you do you actively try to avoid them when you're? Oh right? yeah, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I, I tell you when I see us because cliches are so persistent. Yeah, they're, they're so hard to kill off in in your own thoughts. You know, you can, you can. I still come across. I'll read something I wrote a week a year later. Go back and blown up on some topic that I wrote about and see a cliche in there. And this thing, I'll be so. I'll, It'll disgust me. Yeah, yeah it'll just disgust me. <laughs> yeah. and, but I think too that's when I'm, if I can give advice on writing to people, it's that 
you know, when, when mistakes don't bother you, when cliches don't bother you, you might not be in the right profession. Because, you know, mistakes should just haunt the crap out of you. When you make a mistake that just gets, in these days, it's much easier to fix mistakes because it's just, you just go back online and fix it and then we're all good again. But, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in the print world where you knew it was stuck in that newspaper forever, you know, that, that mistake is forever and no one ever, they do a correction a day later. Well, how many people go back and mix and match and match up that correction with um, the actual um, sentence or the actual article. It's very hard to do. Right. So today's world of making, of fixing things is better. But, you know, I, I, um, I like that discipline. I, I think it's when I, when I hear p- people um, dismissing um, various ways of writing as being, um, you know, they, they, they think you, might think that you're being by being being by being sticky about grammar that you're just being pedantic or you're just being you know, self-important. I think well, if you want to get good at writing, I think those things should matter to you. You don't have to be a perfect you know, grammarian student of grammar, but at least you should care about it. At least mm-hmm. where you ask the question. But then you think um, there been plenty of great writers who really weren't into the spelling um they weren't into the grammar exactly mm-hmm. but they're such great thinkers they made up for it but i think most of us aren't in that category right. and that's right. what always kills me when people make that excuse well so-and-so is, he didn't he didn't follow that really well you aren't so-and-so yeah. <laughs> you're 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 you and you're just above ordinary so you gotta take every little advantage you have to make yourself um you know better you know and i'm not say, not say exceptional but at least better you know care yeah and that's what I think it comes down to for me is I know I'll, I'll never be, a, um, like I say, a famous, um, widely read author or writer. Mm-hmm. I think, well, in my in my sphere though, where I operate, I want to be the best I can I can be at it. Mm-hmm. And I want I don't ever want to um, think as a half-assed effort. You know, I, I want to. I hope I didn't. This is the story. I, I hope I didn't, didn't tell the last time, but um, I was on. But I remember talking to a guy years ago. Um, and he said, well, you know, if, if they give me a article and they um, give me a price of 200 I'll write, you know, I'll write a $200 worth article. If they make it 400 I'll write 400 worth, I think. I was so upset by that because I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't pick a fight with him, but I just thought, you know, when, when, when someone pays you to do a job for them and you accept that payment for that for that assignment, you owe that person your best damn effort, no matter what they're paying you. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's how I look at it. that. I mean, I, I and I've done a lot in my lifetime, where in my career, where I've written, you know, an, an article that somebody somebody else might have paid me double that. Right. But well, they didn't they didn't take the assignment. They wanted this topic, not that topic. But you wanted to write this topic, so you you accepted this person's payment for that amount. Mm-hmm. So you still owe them that. You owe me your best effort. You don't owe a two hundred dollar effort or a twenty dollar effort. You owe me your best effort. Right. You know. So that's 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 one of my. I think, and then that's just a different way of looking at writing trite, writing whatever. Is just that even you should set, set a high bar, and it might be your high bar, but at least try to you know hit that one every time, you, every chance you get. Mm-hmm. And and then that's where I fall back in the marathon analogies, where I think, yeah, I can't run that four-hour marathon, a three-hour, 45-minute marathon anymore, but 
I can still run the best marathon that's in me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's at, yeah, and that will change in time. Whereas writing, I hope that my writing as a, as a 67 year old guy can still stand up to what I was writing when I was in my late thirties or late twenties. I hope it's still good. Yeah. You know, and, but that's a whole different topic too, where you look at the best songwriters, the best poets, the best um, um, authors typically write their best stuff when they're young. Mm-hmm. Which is always fascinating, you know. I think there's a few of them that are ex- exceptions, but I mean, when most people write their big best songs, it's usually before their their late thirties. Yeah, you know? yeah. We discussed that a little bit last time too. Yeah. Just the young, the, the side of that again. Young authors or young songwriters or, or whatever it might be that a lot yeah. of it is at a pretty young age. That's t- that's uh, a, that's the danger of having the same guest on twice. Eh? Yeah, I think we yeah. all have our favorite topics, and I, yeah. I start repeating mine. So, <laughs> no, it's good. I appreciate it. I'm curious as as you're talking about that. I'm still thinking about some of your pastime okay. and, and curious uh, when you like the hunting side of things, the fishing side of things. We're here out. Can I say the lake? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Lake Gogebic up here in the UP, right? You're mm-hmm. you're doing some fishing. Uh, still excited about it. Still passionate about it. And then the hunting side of things too. And that was such a big part of your world when you're an editor there, and still is as you're writing a lot of this stuff. That that passion and excitement has maintained. It must have, right? Oh, but yeah, and, yeah. and I'm just curious how so. And and also like it just feels like a lot of people who are into hunting like you are into fishing like you were or whatever by the time they're 50 or whatever that passion has oh, definitely and, and gone away yeah and I, that's i i can't say for certain um why it's stayed with me yeah because like i was during the turkey season back in may in wisconsin um by the end of that turkey season which in our state it ends like around oh, may 30th or 31st this year 30th i think it was uh, when it when it ended, I was like bummed to yeah. think that I got to wait another ten and a half months for this to happen again. Because <laughs> you're just starting to build build um, some knowledge of the different lands you've been hunting, and and every every hunt. One thing I've always liked about hunting is every hunt is different. Mm-hmm. Every time you make one mistake, and you think you've got got this thing fixed, the next situation you're in is different. Just, and it's just different enough to where it doesn't quite apply anymore. Mm-hmm. And some of that information keeps accumulating and you get better and better. But you, but it's never, but you never get, you never get so good at that. You can just kill a turkey every time you go out or you kill a deer every time you go out. It's always that, there's always an element of chance. There's always elements of actual elements in the weather. Mm-hmm. It's always changing and it's, and you, you, you get better at, you, you learn land, you, you, you can learn the land better and how that land um, changes things and or uh, makes animals and turkeys and whatever adjust their movements. All, all those kind of things can, can kind of come together. Mm-hmm. But as far as how you respond to it all, God, you know, I, I made some mistakes in the last day of the turkey season that I was, think I remember saying to myself, "You, you freaking amateur! Why did you just do that? You mm-hmm. knew better than that. You still did it." And then last year, you, you realize you're still human, right? You know, and and I, I um, but I I think too mixing the running with uh, the hunting is that one thing I don't know is where I would be right now as a hunter if I weren't running. Yeah. Um, I, I'd pro- probably be not hunting some of the different spots I hunted this year, that's for sure. And my attitude might be different without even be bothering bothering to go out. Because, you know, I've, I've explored this idea a number of times in my writing is, you know, why do hunters quit after age 50 in, in big numbers? And I think a lot of it is just um, a lot of it is physical. Mm-hmm. I think you know, it, it just 
is so tiresome and so much work to get somewhere or um, drag a deer out or get up a hill, whatever it might be, or just, you know, get ready. For, and and that lava is not novel to you anymore either. It's not a unique, not a new experience anymore. And that's where I think, well, if you, if you actually look around though, if you, one of my little expressions I have for deer hunters, for example, is they'll, they'll say, I've been hunting deer 50 years. I know this, I know that. And I say, no, you've hunted deer. You've gone to one site 50 years straight. You've had the same hunt 50 times, mm-hmm. but you haven't been really hunting deer 50 years. You've, you've basically have, you know, you're, you're in one stand, you know, the one setup you have. And you, and you haven't even paid attention to how that land around that stand has changed in that time. Mm-hmm. And yet you think somehow these deer are going to keep operating the same way they've always operated. Well, that the land has changed a lot in that mm-hmm. time, you know, and, and God, one, I think where people really um, don't understand that enough is the Northern forest hunters, yeah. the guys who live in, and grow up in Northern Wisconsin and the UP and Northern Michigan, Northeastern Minnesota. A lot of them have um, been hunting deer all their lives, but really don't haven't paid attention to how the land itself has changed mm-hmm. in the areas they hunt, and they expect everything to be the same it was as it was earlier. I think well, it doesn't happen that way. And deer, deer, you can't make deer live where they don't want to live. And yeah, there's we have wolves now, but I think I've hunted deer in areas with the wolves, and it's not always not always all that bad. No, I've had pretty good hunts. When the wolves are around, and I, I think I, at least I can understand that, um, you know, if the if the habitat's not not right, the wolves won't be here either. Mm-hmm. If the fact if the, if the if the habitat's right, the wolves will be there. Well, also the deer because that's what, that's what they're hunting. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of just quit. I, I I quit worrying about things I can't control, and that I just can't find myself. I can, I don't have it in myself to. Um, to burn all my energy in hunting on something I can't control, like you know, worrying about the wolves. Yeah, I think I'd rather, I'd rather worry about um, my own physical fitness, um, worrying about the, the logging practices in that area. It's something you might might be able to talk to someone about for their own property and to get them to think about. Well, if you if you log some of this or or force um, the Forest Service to cut this way instead of uh, this rotation or that rotation. There's so much nuance to it that I think a lot of people don't want to deal with. So I, I, I just find that for hunting, I find hunting so variable, so many variables, so many different ways you can hunt, places you can hunt that I, I still don't lose, I don't, I don't lose the edge for it. I, mm. I'm not, again though, I, I, don't, I know in, in, the, in the pantheon of hunters, I'm not in the upper echelon, I'm not no. even close to it. But because I my, I um, listened to your podcast recently about the, the the still hunter guy. Yeah, Charlie. Charlie. Yeah. yeah. And I thought now that now that guy's out of my league. Yeah. But, but I I respect <laughs> that. I think I I have no problem saying that because I think I know what that involves. Right. And I think I don't want to go to go to all that trouble to, to hunt that way. But I think, but he does. Yeah. And and he's a lot better than I am. At hunting, so I I can always just say, man, hats off to you. That's that's impressive. I I find that just fascinating as hell. And, but the thing that I always find funny about being in this world that I I work in, I found a lot of hunters who resent the hell out of people like that. They yeah. just they're so jealous. They wanna um they'll, they'll um start making up stories about the guy because just because he's a good hunter. Mm-hmm. 
I think instead of respecting the guy for how good he is, we, we um, try to tear him down and make him more human, more like us, you know. And, I, and it, well, it's the same it's the same thing that happens in all aspects of life, though. That's where, I, again, I draw that parallel for hunting is that, well, in many ways, it's just like other aspects of life that, you know, many famous people in history were um, not all that well thought of in their own time because there's so much jealousy around them. Mm. It wasn't until they were dead and all, all the petty jealousies could be stripped away, you realize this person was really a thinker. Yeah. They really, they they moved the ball, you know, another cliche, you know. Right, right. <laughs> it's, uh, no, the, the, the hunting side of things, since I moved back out west four or five years ago, growing up here, I think we, again, I think I might have talked about this a little bit last time, but growing up here, I just hunted over bait. That's the traditional yeah, thing, yeah. right? Uh, moved out west, hunted out there, and it was just unbelievable. Like moving, active, mobile, using my binoculars, finding deer, whatever. You just learn so much about deer behavior yeah, that yeah. you can't learn in the woods unless right. you're like Charlie and spending however much, you know, right. days a year and however many miles a year. <clears throat> That's why I moved back. I committed, I'm going to hunt without bigs. That's the only way I'm going to learn mm-hmm. deer yeah. and learn deer behavior and learn locally in yeah. the big woods, their habitat and whatever yeah. else. But and, and it's the same thing. It's so fun. And I've got way more spots on the map than I can even get to yeah. uh, throughout the whole country. Even yeah. just that, like there's yeah. not enough time in the day and there's not enough years on your belt to yeah. do oh, what you oh, want to do. When, even, when you know? you, I, I remember one of my hunts in the UP back in the nineties. Um, Cause I, I was, I still am a mainly a stand hunter. Yeah. I do a little more. If I get a chance to hunt um, like in Northeastern Minnesota, I used, to, I used to hunt there more often in Ontario and the UP. Um, but I remember one of my years not in on the UP, I remember shooting this deer. And just the way it happens sometimes with deer hunting is that the shot did not hit the deer where I'd aimed it. Mm-hmm. And I found I'd, I'd shot a, into a sapling like you know, 10, 15 yards in front of the deer and it deflected it. So it hit it back in the leg. That ended up being one of these... Um, um, late into the night tracks, finally giving up, coming back in the morning, finishing it, finding finding the animal. But then in the process, went into some areas I'd never been to before. Yeah, It was so fascinating to see the places this deer traveled in those final hours, you know, before I caught up with it. And you start thinking, yeah, if that terrible thing hadn't happened to that poor animal, I never had the benefit of all learning all this new territory back in here. Yeah, And you think, well, if you go still hunting... And just take up a track, you can find some pretty neat neat spots that you never would have known before. Mm-hmm. And it, well, I, I remember years ago, um, a guy wrote an article for me at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, where what he would do in the winter after the season for his um, winter scouting, he'd get on these on these tracks and backtrack them, and try to figure out well, where'd they come from last night mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And there's always these different ways of looking at things and. She's the same purpose, and you try to figure out, well, where did it go last night? Yeah, and and that's where I get mad at the baiters because I think, well, when you start throwing baiting in the equation, you don't. It takes the mystery out of it. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, they're going to be camped out some near, somewhere nearby, within the easy walking distance of the bait, and then when the bait eventually disappears, they'll they'll go somewhere else again. Mm-hmm. But, but I think where's the mystery in that? You know, the the um the, the fun of unraveling a track. Right. Um, that in itself is fun, but then when you, you talk to guys like Charlie and these Benoits before him and a couple of buddies I know, um, Jeff Robel down in Mercer, Wisconsin, there's different guys that are doing this stuff. You'll never hear about them. They'll never be famous, but, right. they're, but they're out there hunting their butts off 
and they're and chances are they'll they'll do it well late in their life because it they um it means that much to them that they'll they'll do the things it takes to to be able to keep doing that yeah but i think where people drop out of hunting too often is because well you've done it the same way the same way how many years same techniques same same place you don't you don't shake it up at all you don't really learn anything you don't challenge yourself um intellectually on, on what you know about pulling all these all these you know things together when you're on the track yeah you know, that's that takes a special skill and you know i i can't help but really admire that yeah no with that like you said if you hunt the same place i could see myself getting burnt out mm-hmm. you know by the age of 50 or whatever else but now the, again hunting out west mule deer hunting stuff like that and stuff locally like i said you look at my onyx it's an absurd amount oh, of pins yeah, of like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more time than i have you know what i mean i can't yeah. even i can't even begin to comprehend but one of the cool places i had this guy kind of a crazy story i was working out west at a sack uh, chevy and cadillac dealership doing sales out there in dickinson north dakota huh. and i had this guy you know, i was out in the lobby uh and this and i need to make it there but i had this guy sitting on the bench right there drinking coffee and i just whatever i was slow or whatever else just started chatting with him we started talking deer hunting and his eyes lit up he's like yeah i'm a mule deer hunter or whatever else and then we were like talking about mule deer hunting and all excited about it and he stopped and he's like perfectly healthy looking guy 45 years old he's like look and I, I gotta tell you something he's like i i i recently got told i got six months left left to live and i'm like really i I thought he was joking but so i didn't know how to respond and he's like yeah and he's like i want to tell you about a hunting spot uh, on a western state he said "Uh, write this down uh again i'm still thinking he's joking but i go okay i'll write it down you know start writing down he's like hey go 15 miles down this road take a left here take a right here take a left at this tower drive 8.2 miles here whatever stop here hike to here go to this point i got i'm writing all this down thinking there's no way this guy's being real boom whatever that was the end of it i'm like hey man i'm sorry to hear that it's not fun whatever we and then moved on about our day about a month or two later two months later i'm like oh man that guy's name his name is pat he's like pat told me about the hunting spot i wonder if this is real like it's got to be a joke you know Mm -hmm. so i googled his name and sure enough there's his obituary he had died about a week or two before that then this was a couple months after and i looked at this and i'm like holy crap he wasn't kidding i honestly thought like he was joking or whatever I'm like, okay, pull up Google Earth, start pulling up his directions. I'm like, this is real stuff. To the T, I still got my this note on my phone of where he's describing me. Go to this tower, go to this lookout. And he's like, go on the south side of these meadows on a big snowstorm. He said, uh, wait till the big snowstorm. He's killed several 30-inch mule deer out of this, these meadows in these huge snowstorms. He said, you have to snowshoe in there. It's a pain in about to get to there. But he's, yeah, and, and look, and sure enough, you park right here. There's the meadows, whatever else. I've got that point. Have, have you done it? No. Oh, you got to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, but even just to go look at it. Yeah. Even if it's yeah. outside of hunting season or whatever. That's, but That's a hell of a story. Yeah. I still have that note sitting on my yeah. phone, and I still got his obituary saved. And well, when you, when you do that hunt, you got to let me know, and I'll, I'll write about it. Yeah. Seriously, that's a, that's a hell of a story. Yeah. That's what, I mean, when he, and then looking back at that, and just... Unbelievable. Yeah, on a much smaller scale as far as drama. Um, I remember the first year I hunted in Idaho. Uh, the area has since gotten a lot more pressure, but at the time, um, this back in 2006, I remember um, we, we got into our spot, and then, then um, before evening, some guys came into our camp spot just down, down from us. And there was all this gnashing of teeth and stuff. And, oh, God, you know, now these guys are right in our lap and all that kind of stuff. But rather than um, be negative about it, we, over the course of the next few days, we walked over and 
um, talked to them a couple of different different nights and got to know them a little bit. And they're they're guys about our age. They're like in this back when I was about fifty years old. And the the um, probably about the fifth day, they're pulling. They're getting ready to pull out these two guys. And so I went over during the, during the lunch hour. I had been I was back at lunchtime that day, and I walked over there and here they're breaking camp and got talking to them and and they one of them said that you know he's basically d- getting done elk hunting he, you know, he's just has kind of lost <clears throat> lost the burn <laughs> as our buddy um said yeah he too he says this this um way of hunting is just getting to be too much too much work and he said that he had been in a bad car accident and and um various aches and pains and <clears throat> broken bones that just don't heal quite right and your joints don't operate the way they are and it's just this this kind of mountains that we're in was just getting to be too much for him. And with that, you know, this is back before Onyx, this is back before um, we had GPS units, but we didn't have the nice units that combined all the, the mapping and stuff, that, you know, that, that you have now. Anyway, this we, we still all carried little, um, you know, the um, quadrangle maps, mm-hmm. uh, fo- folded up paper maps in our, in our, in our um, you know, the little cargo pocket in your on your pants. He said, "Get get your map out. I'll show you. I'll show you some good spots to try." And he got his little pencil out, made a few marks on it, and and those really were turned out to be some really good spots. <laughs> and then as as time went on, he he never did come back. Yeah. But I stayed in touch with him and let him know how things went for a few years. And then this kind of fell out of touch. But but I think there is that certain continuity among people that you know, we 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 all get too competitive about hunting, about saving our spots and being protective. Of our of our secrets, but I think well, once in a while, you know, if if you can pass on that knowledge, God, that's that's a to me that's a hell of a thing that people do sometimes. Yeah, because it's, it's a real giving uh, thing. Yeah, I I wish in the moment when I was talking to this guy that I would have realized how serious he was, you know, and, and I yeah. I don't say I won't say that I was like rude or discounted it, mm-hmm. but I just in my head it just didn't make sense. He was perfectly healthy, yeah. sitting right in front of me, yeah. you know? um, and then later it hit me how. But I need to go there, and that's what mm-hmm. I feel like. This burden, I need to go there and hunt that. Yeah, those meadows on a yeah. snowstorm. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, like I say, if you do, um, you, you keep me get me posted. Those, yeah, those, I'd love to write about that. That's, that's yeah. I I did a story a number. Oh, this is twenty years ago now. Um, where a guy who was probably in his fifties at the time told me about how he had this great memory of fishing some brook trout stream over in Vilas County, Wisconsin. <clears throat> and it was deep in the National Forest, and his dad had taken him in there and when he was a kid. And then, for some reason, they never fished that spot again. But he always had this special memory of that, of that place. And he's telling me the story, and then he said, he just died on this, that previous winter that he was going to find that, that stream and fish it again. So he did, did a lot of studying, figuring out, looking at maps, figuring out that, you know where this had to have been. And he finally poked his way back into the spot to confirm that was where they fished. And of course, it looked a lot different now than it did, you know, 40, 50 years before when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. But he was pretty certain that's where his dad took him and he caught some trout and stuff. And that's why he took me back in there um, that summer, in the heat of the summer, <laughs> just to show me. Because I wanted to, I, I really wanted to write about it. Yeah. So he said, "I'll take you back in there." So he he took me back in there, and I. By the time we came out, I felt it was, I had a good story. I think I wrote a good story about it, but I felt guilty because, you know, 
this guy was now another few years, quite a few years older than what he was when um, he went through and was a kid. Mm-hmm. And he was a heavy smoker and whatever. And I think I damn near thought he was going to kill himself on the, on the walk back out. Because, yeah. you, know, you know, here is the heat of the day and we're out there slugging away through mosquitoes and, and this tall, in some spots, um, tall grass down the creek bottoms. And then back up these hills in, in this northern forest environment, rolling hills in that county. And, and I, I'm going to kill this guy. Then I'll feel really guilty. And <laughs> but, but he was actually, he was huffing and puffing. And he'd stop and take a break. And he'd take a smoke another cigarette. You know, that, yeah. but that too made it, made this, made the whole story more interesting. But he, uh, actually, he's still around today. He's not, he's not, not in great health anymore. But, you know, it's just, but it's those kind of stories that I think, where I don't ever get bored doing this job, you know, yeah. where I, I, I still find the human interest stories just fascinating. And I, I've, I've never, I think I said last time, I'm not, I'm not a how-to writer, mm-hmm. but, but I do like the human interest stories. I like anything to do with deer camps and deer hunting history and um, a lot of social and the politics that spin in a lot of hunting. And, mm-hmm. and for some reason, the hunting, they're just a lot more, I find... Um, heartfelt as far as affecting lots of people you can you can get some good arguments going on with walleye fishermen and the uh, certain issues involving fishing but hunting seems like they, like they get get a lot more ingrained in people and, and these deer camps that people have and um you know people love seeing these old-time hunting pictures and you just don't see that same passion in old-time fishing pictures you know no. you, it, i don't know what it is but I, I don't think I've ever gotten a whole big reaction out of an old-time fishing story. Hmm. And maybe I just don't, don't know the right people. But, um, but it seems like it, like, it is, like it is something that um, you'll see this a lot more linked to. Like I, I did a piece last year about a, um, a picture I saw online on, on social media about um, said something like, um, um, Wisconsin moose hunt, vintage Wisconsin moose hunt, um, 1932 or something like that. And I instantly, my radar went up and I thought, <laughs> you know, my, my first thought was when you post something that specific online, you better be able to back it up because you know, there's about a thousand, thousand freaking fact checkers out there uh-huh. waiting to pounce. People love pouncing on those kind of things. And in this case, sure enough, you know, I started doing some digging on it and I thought, this is a great. It was a great picture. It was really a fascinating picture of these guys with these like three or four moose hanging up and deer hanging up and you know kind of packing into the side, and they're wearing this really old um, clothing that looked like it was, boy, it wasn't quite our country that kind of look to it, and so some people started speculating who I showed the picture to that oh, this might this might actually be Sweden. Another guy said, no, nah, it might actually be um, southern Canada, but maybe recent immigrants from Sweden. And eventually uh, some guy said, no, this actually is a Wisconsin Historical Society picture. Here's the here's the file number. Hmm. And I wrote back to him and said, well, thank you. This is uh, my first real lead. And I said, but that, but that does not prove that this was taken in Wisconsin or that was taken in 1932. You know, So I, I actually went down to the Wisconsin Historical Society then and they dug the picture out, and they got all the um, the, fo- the actual physical folders that 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 negative came from. Well, it turns out the picture was taken in southern Canada in in the early '30s by a guy who happened to be a Madison resident, hmm. and he probably had a decent 
a photographer along that got some good pictures of the hunt up there or the afterward of the hunt. And then what I learned in the process of the lies pictures that came out of that era, um, the reason it was photographed by this particular photograph photographer that I was writing about was that, well, he had a photo studio and, and a big part of their business back then was taking pictures of pictures. Hmm. Somebody bring a, a picture in and they, they didn't have duplicating machines like we have now. And these days it's all computerized, of course, but you know, to take a picture, to duplicate a picture without the negative, they basically had to retake the picture and make it of a picture. So some guys are really good at it though. Hmm. So that's how I ended up with this mass and um, connection was that, well, that's where the photograph was was duplicated basically. Sure. But as well as kind of things like that, that I find it's fun to unravel as, yeah. a, as, a, as a reporter and writer and outdoor calmness or it might be. So yeah, I just don't, I think when you, I think once you lose your curiosity, you know, you pr- it, then it probably is, is time to retire when you think think you've um, got nothing more to offer. But I think, I don't know, as long as I'm out there meeting people, talking to people, I think there'll always be stories to share that. I still think I have the skill to do it and, and, the, and, and actually the interest in it, you know, where it, it's still fun for me to do it. Yeah. No, let's, uh, is there anything we didn't talk about, anything we should have? Not covered? really. The, 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 the one thing I just... To, to kind of circle back to the running thing, the one yeah. people often ask me though, as a runner, um, <coughs> excuse me, for advice. And the best advice I have is that unlike me, where I got I got into running kind of by accident, after building a base of physical fitness, is that that is a serious piece of advice that if you want to get into running, don't try to do it um, from scratch. Mm. You know, spend spend about six months in, at the gym. You know, doing weightlifting and all the all the um, building up of the muscles because you you um I I did an article one time for the Green Bay Press Gazette about um, basically getting ready to run, and the thing that the all the physical therapists said that I talked to and the running coaches that the common thing kept coming back to one idea was that it all starts with the butt. Hmm. The butt has to be strong. Mm-hmm. That's a, these are these are two huge muscles that only basically humans have. That where they're born to you know, that, that expression "born to run." Well, one of the reasons they think we were, we were born to run is because we have this unusual these unusual muscles in our in our butts in the buttocks. You know, and yeah. that basically once you get that butt these butt muscles built up, everything else will start falling in the line. But you, but if those butt muscles are weak, everything below it starts having problems, and so you really gotta just go see a, a real physical trainer who can work with you and that kind of stuff, and or at least read, read enough about where you um, work on those on those things. <coughs> and yeah. Built it up. So that's my last thing I wanted to just add to, to my talk. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good good little tip. Wasn't. Uh where did I hear this, that like humans would have evolved to run, to be able to run down game, run down deer. Is that a thing? Is that, have you heard of there that actually, before? There actually is some, um, <coughs> you know, take all of my coughs. Yeah. There actually is some, I think, um, it's probably valid to some extent that, um, we're built for endurance, right? You know, that humans are built for that endurance tech running. We aren't, we aren't fast. But we can run down the fastest animal in many cases if we can track them. Mm-hmm. And so there are cases in Africa where they, some of these ancient tribes and even current tribes where they still had the, the ability with their tracking skills and their running skills to be able to hound, hound dog these these animals till they're 
basically can't run anymore, can't can't flee anymore, and they can close it and make the kill. Right. And I I, I um the thing that's kind of left left behind though is a lot, a lot of those skills involve skills that modern humans just don't have. Yeah. And, and tracking is one of them. You're tracking animals over dry ground. You know, she's re- we need snow typically for us to follow an animal very far. Yeah. But you but you read about these um, professional tr- uh, hunters in Africa who hire people who still can track. And um, I was even listening to um, the Meat Eater podcast this morning talking to this this um, uh, professional hunter, and he said that he's he he grew up around these people. He or at least grew up um, a long part of his life learning from them I mean, you still can't track like they do hmm. and he said it but a lot of it starts with their, with their eyesight their eyesight is just incredible they can see things that the rest of us just don't see mm-hmm. and i think most of us can relate to that you know we we all almost everyone knows at least one guy they hunt with who can pick out ducks way before other people see him yeah they can pick, pick out things in the snow and pick out things in the, in the leaves that our visual acuity just isn't like that and I, and i think um those kind of things that I, I I get back to this whole idea. Let's let's try instead of being jealous of people with special talents, let's appreciate the special talents. And I I think hunters see the examples of it all the time, but they're too busy, too often worried about how they stack up mm-hmm. rather than just appreciating that. And then one of my favorite little things I came across a few years ago was in the fall I went hunting with these guys, and one of the of the three guys in that in that blind with me, the other two guys all respected the fact that this one guy, he always picked up the ducks way before anyone else could see him. And he'd, and he'd say, just watch, there, there's a flock coming out this way, and he'd point. And eventually, everyone else would go, oh, yeah, okay, now I see it. Because <laughs> you'd tell him, like, you know, look two fingers above the horizon, um, look, you know, up, you know, to the right of that, that big oak tree a half mile away, and then look up, like, three fingers and watch and eventually I, I was not the first one to catch him after that but this guy consistently picked him up then about um four or five months later i was out, out um ice fishing with a guy down in shitek wisconsin and this guy and his father and his father's about my age um they would go out and put these tip-ups out they, they, they had their truck parked out there in the ice they put their tip-ups so far away, I really, I could kind of see them, that you know, they outline way out there, but not very, not very good. I kind of took their assurances that I was looking in the right spot. But when a flag went up, that guy and his dad always saw the flag go up before I did. Yeah. And then even when, it was up, when it was up, I'd look out there and go, ah, I guess that's a flag up. <laughs> but you certainly realize that some people just have exceptional... Um, you know skills like that, you yeah. know, and and you hear it all the time in turkey hunting, where a father takes his daughter or takes his son, and the kids hearing gobbling all morning. The father said, "No, that's not it." And then the next thing you know, the father finds it. You hear that? He's that's the third time I've heard it. It's right. coming closer. <laughs> that's the only reason you heard it now. And I had that happen with my daughter back in May. I, my daughter's um, Leah. She, she's um, thirty eight now, I think. But all of, all my life hunting with her. I remember when she was little, I used to always doubt her, her um, what she was hearing, whether it was geese or whether it was deer, not or, um, turkeys. And it wasn't until it happened enough times for I finally started to realize that she's not kidding when she says she hears a, a, a distant gobble. Mm-hmm. And that when it starts getting closer, she'll start 
saying, I heard it again. Mm-hmm. I heard it again. And I'm still dismissing it. Well, this, this last spring, I took her out and we, we called in a gobbler and she killed it. And I, and I said, well, I heard it when it, when it was here. And I pointed out, you know, that spot. She says, well, that was about the third or fourth time it gobbled. Yeah. You know, it was coming. I knew it was coming. Right. And it wasn't until you heard it that you finally started to kind of <laughs> start to pay attention, you know. And, yeah. and and then she said, did you hear it drumming? Did you hear the spitting drum? I said, no. She said, it was spitting drumming all the way in. I said, I never heard that, you know. Yeah. And it, it reminded me, um, I, I wear hearing aids. I, 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 I can adjust mine with my iPhone on an app to turn them up. Yeah. And even with them turned up, I still wasn't hearing what she was hearing. And the two years before that, two years ago, I, I'd take, there's a, there's a young woman down in um, Nielsville, Wisconsin. She's a, she's a hell of a trapper and a hell of a turkey hunter. She, she does it all. Her name is, uh, she just got married. I can't remember her last name now, but her first name is Sky, S-K-Y-E. And it used to be um, Good, G-O-O-D-E. But anyway, Sky took me turkey hunting one, one day. And... <laughs> We weren't even out in the field a half an hour, had one gobbling. And unfortunately, it didn't gobble until we, we had um, split. She'd drop back behind me and put me out in front and then started calling. And, and this gobbler answered, and I was thinking it was over here to my right because my right ear is better than my right left ear. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I think what happened. Well, it wasn't 15, 20 minutes later, I hear something to my left, and I look, and here's this gobbler, full strut, only like 25 yards away, off my left shoulder. If I would have seen him coming, I would have had such an easy kill because he because he came off my off the shoulder. I could shoot, you know, as a right-handed shooter. But he came in totally uh, from my ear, silent. Right. And I eventually I blew the shot and missed him. Didn't get him. And Sky was sitting right behind me that the whole time watching me. So she said later, she says, I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> He's coming down that logging road, spitting and drumming and spitting and drumming and spitting and drumming, and you're not even looking his way at all. Yeah. <laughs> you kept looking off to your right. And I, she says, I'm trying to get your attention. I, I could not get your attention. And finally, when you turned, he has already busted you, you know. And I, I said, I'm... My left ear just doesn't have the hearing my right ear does, and I he came in on my on my, my weak side basically. Yeah. But she said, no, he was making he was strutting, he was spitting and drumming the whole way in. And I, I never heard it once. Yeah. And it just so all those kind of things too. I, I I take the lesson I take from that is keep that in mind about all things in life. We all have our weaknesses, and someone's um, someone just because someone is proclaiming to know something you don't. It doesn't mean they're smarter than you. Just that means that they see it, they hear it, or they um, feel it better than you do. Yeah. And you just have some deficiencies you got hope you can work on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I try I try to take little life lessons and all those kind of things, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to end it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank Pat. you. Thanks for hopping on again. You bet. Hey guys, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined. Share this podcast with your friends, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.